It was more than just not being able to hear anything or make contact with anyone. It was as though... as though for a time I didn't exist. As though I had no place in the world. No part of the life around me. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's up? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Features on social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, consider joining our Patreon. Fuck you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you and your stupid notes, dude. Uh, so here we are, man. Episode 75, and we're going to celebrate by watching a movie and actually talk about a film this time. Yeah, we'll, we'll just say episode 75. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a big milestone, dude. 75. We've been doing this for way too long. Yeah, I guess technically this is episode 75 of recording. Its release will not be 79. Yeah. But I feel like this is caused the... E- you just said 79 instead of 75. I just want to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in the 70s. That's that's where this episode lands. It's recorded at 75. I fine. I will renumber. I will make the number system different so it is 75, even though there's like three other episodes coming out before it. Mm-hmm. We did watch a movie today. We're actually, well, the way we record, we're, we, we've, this is part of our new I guess it's not new because we've been doing it all year now, so it's not really a new thing. But we've been watching movies and then talking about them, taking notes and that kind of stuff. And you're taking notes. I, you're just, just you've already seen it a hundred times. And you're taking notes. Well, look, man, my me- <laughs> my memory's fucking bad. God damn. Oh, this is gonna be a rowdy podcast, isn't it? Yep. fucking two melancholy fucking 60s horror movies shot in black and white and nick is just on one yeah so now it's october which means halloween season we whiffed last year and we didn't put out a single episode in october we didn't do anything for spooky season we did not we didn't get spooky we did not get spooky that's fucking (laughs) lame dude (laughs) we took a four-month hiatus or something like that um, I'll take most of that blame, but I had some shit going on. You were actually busy. Well, I was busy too, but whatever. But this year we've made it a point to celebrate the spooky season and get some spooky content. I don't know how many more times I can say spooky, but here we are. But uh, for October, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be watching some movies, and this is the first episode of watch some movies. Actually, we're watching a lot of '60s movies for October. Hell yeah! Lots of things that are on. You know, released on the Criterion Collection, which should make you happy. Of course. 
And, well, this one is kind of a... I This is an episode we talked about doing for a while. And it's kind of a no-brainer because I feel like it's two of the most important... Or maybe not the most... Well, yeah. I don't say most important, but two of very important films that came out in the 60s that kind of drastically changed and altered where horror would go from the 70s onward. Both were influential. Both are, you know, different but kind of the same. And, of course, we're going to be talking about Carnival Souls, directed by Herc Harvey, and Night Living Dead, directed by George A. Romero. A couple weird coincidences for both of these is both Herc Harvey and George Romero, you know, worked in industrial educational films and Romero did some commercials and stuff like that. They're both regional filmmakers. Herc was working out of Kansas, Romero out of Pittsburgh. Both had iconic horror films that fell into the public domain, which means they didn't have copyright and they got the shit bootlegged out of them. They basically, everything they put in those movies, they really didn't get back originally. They just got fucked. Mm -hmm. And... You know, the the big differing point is one of them ended up having a very long, esteemed career and became a horror icon, and the other one just kind of went back to the industrials and, you know, educational movies and never made another feature film. Hmm. And, I, you know, there's going to be things we'll talk about, circumstances, and, you know, we're going to just kind of get on to that. So we're going to be talking about Carnival Souls and Night Living Dead. I'm going to say Carnival Souls is one of my all-time favorite movies, top 10. Night Living Dead is the movie that got me into cult films. So, But there's a lot to compare and contrast with these. And Carnival's, this is, this, Carnival's your first time watch for this one, right? Yep, first time. First time. It's, always, it's been on the list for a while. I think we've played it. Uh, I think we maybe played it at Los Feliz yeah. in the past year or so. Yeah, I played it. We'll talk about that. Oh, oh right. but yeah so we're gonna take a quick commercial break here but when we come back we're gonna be talking about carnival souls on the cinematic boy podcast Halloween costumes from most stores have one built-in disadvantage. Anyone can buy the same costume. A costume from Ragstock, on the other hand, is unique because you selected yourself from a huge stock of recycled clothing. Create your own Dracula or Superman. Be a cowboy or a rock star. A tramp or a vamp. Visit Ragstock at 327 State Street, Madison. Presenting Sheer Madness, Circuit City's Midnight Madness Sale. Thursday only till midnight. Circuit City will go raving mad with shocking reductions on hundreds of items. Save on this VHS VCR, just $169. This RCA 19-inch color TV with remote is a mere $266. Circuit City's Midnight Madness Sale. Get there by midnight before the curtain falls. Welcome back. It's officially Halloween time on the Cinematic Void Podcast. And we're talking about two classic horror films from the 60s, both shot in black and white. Up first, we're talking about a film that came out in 1962. It's directed by Herc Harvey. It is Carnival Souls. Stars Candace Hilgoss, Sidney Berger, Francis, France, I guess Francis Feast. Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a wild name, Francis Feast or Feist. 
Is it Francis Feist? I don't Francis know. Feist. Yeah, it's Feist. Um, Art Ellison, Stan Levette, and Harvey, who plays the man or the lead ghoul in the movie. Mm. The film was written by John Clifford. It was photographed by Maurice Prather. And there's music by Gene Moore, which has, one, I think, one of the best kind of like one instrument scores next to like the third man with the zither or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is all organ. You know, this film was shot in Lawrence, Kansas and Magna, Utah by the Salt Lakes. And for those of you who haven't seen it, which I would hope you've seen it if you're going to listen to this episode, but after a traumatic accident, a woman becomes drawn to a mysterious abandoned carnival. Now, we kind of talked about in the intro, this is your first time watching it. What was kind of your first impressions as going through it? I really like the way everything is lit and shot. Like, I think that's like even, uh, you know, the, the we watched just the Criterion Blu-ray that you have and the, you know, the 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 title screen that's just a, a loop of like little scenes and stuff. It's just like, it's instantly striking. And so kind of before I see much of anything, that was, that's just like, it was just like, damn, this fucking looks just amazing. Yeah. It's like, like really like that, that, uh, that loop before you even hit play is like really fucking compelling. Yeah. It makes me go like, I need, I need to know whatever the fuck this is. So, so as we were watching it and like, as it was unfolding, what were your thoughts on it? Cause I'd rather get your first impression. Well, I mean, I think it's, I, I, you know, I unfortunately did that thing that I hate when people do, where it's just like, I fucking already, already know what this is. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's, I mean, because it's not, it's, it's not a, uh, as much as it does like unfold, it's kind of never feels like too secretive about mm-hmm. the, the conceit there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just like, I don't know, is she dead or is she not or whatever? I don't know if I'm, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but, oh, no, you're, but, you're, but, 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 but much like the movie, right? Yeah. Like it's just you know she what you know there's the car wreck at the very beginning and she climbs out of the water and i i'm just like i she's dead she's dead dog <laughs> you know <laughs> they're all dead dog and then as stuff happens throughout the movie it does but it, but i like that it kind of makes you you're kind of questioning it the whole time you know it's it's always kind of ambiguous um and that's it's that's that, that's its charm really um, and it kind of leaves some things unexplained, even though it like does just like straight up tell you at the end, mm-hmm. it still makes it go like, why? I don't know. Still, why was it like this? You know what I mean? It's all very much, uh, like a dream or something. Yeah. I mean, there's one of the things that, you know, you go online and see is like, people will say that David Lynch is a fan of this movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I believe John Clifford, he also, besides writing this movie, also was a musician. I think he worked with Angelo Bellamonte, who, of course, went on to compose most of David Lynch's stuff. Cool. So I don't I don't know if that can, if that's the connection to get there, but mm-hmm. there is that connection. But, like, you know, there's, there's a dream and nightmare logic to this. Yeah. And I don't know. Be, before we kind of more dig deep, I just want to give the more context, and these are all the notes. You know, Her Carvey, you know, worked for a company called Centr- the Centron Corporation, who basically made industrial and educational films. You know, he, you know, probably two of his most famous shorts is Shake Hands with Danger. Which was used, I, I think, in like a Denzel Curry, uh, Kenny Beats song. Oh, yeah, because it has that, that fucking song in Shake Hands for Danger runs through that whole short, mm-hmm. which is like a work safety video. Cool. Shake hands with danger. Shake hands with danger. Need a guy who ought to know. I used to laugh at safety. Now they call me Three Finger Joe. And he also did a Halloween safety kind of short film in the 70s that 
Centron or whatever. I think Cornette bought out Centron at some point and like redid it in the 80s or did a newer version of it. Um, L. Schneider, who actually when I screened this came out and did a little intro of Carnival Solo. She's currently working on a documentary on Centron and her Carby in general. Actually not really getting into too much Carnival Souls, but more on like the Centron shorts and like how that company worked, which mm. is kind of interesting because like I think, you know, that their their office is now gone and stuff like that. It's like that that company ran for years. But in, in Kansas. In Kansas, yeah. Okay. But the thing about it is, like, they would go shoot all over the country, outside the country, to make these shorts. Mm-hmm. Like, it was big business making industrial and educational movies because, you know, they're playing training videos for work. Oh, you know, okay. Like, yeah, yeah. educational videos at different, you know, schools. Like, you know, why is hygiene important and shit like that? Mm-hmm. So, they were, you know... People might not consider that, like, you know, this, I mean... Is that something, that, like, I remember, uh, dude, I worked at Bob Evans, like, at the tail end of high school, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you first, when you, like, a place like that, at least back then, and I feel like it's, uh, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think they do that kind of thing anymore, man. Do you, is there, like, a training video when you get a job at, like, certain, like, if you got a job at, like, Target or something, do they show you a fucking stupid video before you start? I'm kind of curious if they still do that, because, yeah. like, I haven't worked one of those jobs, but if you go on like, you, I, I think maybe I'm just old. Yeah, but but if you go on YouTube, you can find most of those training. There's McDonald's, yeah. there's Blockbuster, there's Wendy's, there's like it's kind of cool. It's it's because it was a big thing because they're like, all right, we're gonna just sit you down and mm-hmm. we'll be right back. We'll be back in an hour. Yeah, <laughs> learn how to make fries from this video or whatever. But the the cool thing about Centron and Carnival Souls is like everyone that kind of worked behind the scenes, like the the crew, all worked for Centron. Mm-hmm. So it's you know that's I mean the, there's gonna be something we can point out when we talk about the look of the movie and how it's shot and all that because like you know yeah they were making industrial films and education films but all those people knew how to fucking make a movie because mm-hmm. they had to yeah like they were highly skilled uh, this film was you know made for thirty three thousand and it was shot basically over three weeks which was the vacation Herc Harvey took away from his day job at Centron. They kind of shot in Kansas and went to Utah, and then I think they came back to Kansas and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. The genesis of this film project is basically Harvey was working for Centron, did, a, I think, an industrial film in California. He was driving back to Kansas, and he was going through Utah, and he kind of saw the Salt Air Pavilion, which is featured in this movie. And he kind of stopped and looked around. And was like, "What the fuck is this?" I mean, it's it's on the uh, the cover. It's in the like the cover art for the Criterion, uh, and you know, it's a, definitely a, a big like one of the main, you know, features in the film. Um, I my first reaction when I saw this crazy looking building, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I kind of didn't notice it on the cover so much. Like I could because it just like focuses on her face or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a painting. But um, as soon as I saw that building in the film, I went like. Dude, that just looks like a, a wastewater treatment plant, like in, <laughs> at least in Maryland or something. Like I feel like, like there's the there's that weird ass thing in Dundalk that's yeah. like, the two, you know what I mean? Like there's just weird shit like that. Uh, I don't know. That that's when I see buildings. I don't know. It looks like it's like a, a or just like a Polish dance hall, which I think is exactly what it is. Yeah, it's. I don't know why Polish, but that, I, I mean, know. yeah, I I think you're thinking because I think there is a Polish dance hall in Baltimore, yeah, right? So yeah, that. Yeah. that <laughs> I don't know if this one was particularly Polish. The, the Lithuanian hall. Like, oh, yeah. Like, I definitely saw some, some like, how oh, the Melvins played there. Like, there were some good, great hardcore shows there. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, like, it was, like, a legit hall. And I think at the time, where it was near the Salt Lakes, mm-hmm. the, the Salt Lakes were a little higher up, and it was more kind of a resorty thing. And then when the water receded and 
there's I just eventually got abandoned. Mm-hmm. I know the original version of it burned down at some point, but I think they rebuilt kind of a thing and it's still in that spot, or at least the variation of it. Which I kind of want to go see. I mean, obviously, it's not the same thing, but like, mm-hmm. I kind of just want to go there because of this movie. Crazy. Right, so, w- was this uh, was was this well liked when it came out? Was this did did people notice this film when it came out? No, this was definitely an after a, after the fact thing because mm-hmm. you know it's a low budget film, and one of the things I before yesterday, so I've watched this twice in a row. I kind of wanted to listen to the commentary just see if there was little nuggets in there because Herc Harvey and John Clifford are on the commentary. It's one of those mm-hmm. like scene-specific commentaries. So okay. like they'll talk for a little bit, then there'll be like 20 minutes of nothing and then they come back on. And the thing he said that kind of struck me and it makes a lot of sense is that they want the look of a Bergman film and the feeling of a Cocteau film. Mm-hmm. Which means like their aspirations weren't horror movies. It yeah. was fucking art house. Yeah, I mean they definitely nailed it. They definitely they definitely nailed it. There's a lot of there's a lot of that sort of like it's not very it's not very straightforward. It's very it is very just artsy, you could say. But just just the plot alone and and the way that it it moves along has that feel to it. Yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. The way it looks, the editing. I mean, yeah. It, it's. If it, if that movie was in a different language, mm-hmm. I think the reception would have been different for it at yeah. the time because you know, you know Bergman, like all those things were being imported here and playing art houses and doing really well. But like an American film with that kind of sensibility on a low budget probably wasn't what they you know mm-hmm. theaters were looking for. And kind of circling back to that Salt Air Pavilion, like after you know. Herc had seen it. He came back to Centron and he talked to John Clifford. He's like, hey, I want you to write a script. We're going to make a movie. He's like, I saw this like pavilion thing out in Utah and I just have this vision of all, all these like kind of ghouls or whatever dancing in it. And that's basically all he gave me. He's like, that's the only scene I want. You can write everything else. That's sick. And yeah. So I, I, I'm not, I can't remember how long Clifford took to write, but it was pretty quick. And Clifford, like, you know, again, all these guys that they probably worked on various scripts or for like the industrials and education stuff. So they were really kind of in tune with it. So there really wasn't much of a leap going from industrial to like, you know, feature film or indie film because mm-hmm. they already had the skill set. They had the equipment, the, you know, they knew how to light, expose, you know, like all that shit. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like they were coming in like completely raw, like a lot of indie filmmakers do. Totally. But, but to be that, that good with like exposition that good with, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I don't know. I, when I'm thinking of those industrial films, I mean, I mean, just like, he's really good at telling a story. Yeah. You know? And I mean, that's the basis of all those industrial education films. You have to tell a story in a certain confines and you, and there's certain points you have to hit. And this movie kind of hits them all. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've already kind of alluded to this. This is one of my all-time favorite films, and this is in my top ten. And this was a film that like I liked when I originally saw, and it just kept growing and growing. And basically, what happened like during the lockdown, I was like basically living on a couch and you know trying to go to sleep. And like the movie that I felt most comfort in was watching this movie. Mm-hmm. So I watched Carnival Soul. Sometimes I watched it multiple times a night. And if I had been, like, tracking my letterbox of what I was actually watching, it would probably been, like, Carnival Souls 100 times or something in, like, 2020, 2021 or some shit like that. I could definitely imagine, you know, waking up and that loop oh, is, yeah. is happening and then you just hit play again and roll back over and go to sleep, you know? Like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that that's kind of what it was. There's times where, like, I didn't go to sleep and I watched it from start to finish. That loop hit, I hit play again. And then, <laughs> I, like, 
I was just absorbing this movie. And I think why I was watching it so much and kind of feel like I was relating to it was because like I was just in a weird place and like some of it was locked down, some of it was a lot of personal stuff, but like I just felt so disconnected to the world. Mm-hmm. And watching Mary, the Mary Henry Keck character played by Candace Hillgoss, like I related to it. I related being, you know, occasionally being around people and just not feeling like you connect or belong or just mm-hmm. feeling like you're just like a stranger in a strange land or like you're just a ghost, yeah, kind of thing. And like it just really, really hit hard. Right in a way, like, you know, films can hit hard, but this one was just, like, mm-hmm. it was devastating, but it was kind of, like, eye-opening. It was a lot of things. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of the film's charm is, like, very subtle things that happen that, it, like, blink and you'll miss it type things. And so it's it's definitely, for one, it's definitely not, uh, it's not something you want to watch with your phone in your hand. No. You know? I mean, you could say that about a lot of, you know, most films, really, but... But this one definitely is like that, where it's just those little things that if you miss them, they're they're gone and it's never explained. Yeah, and it's um, so I, I'm, it makes me curious since this is my first time seeing it. Uh, if if you're kind of rewarded with with uh, more viewings, I I think so. I think mm-hmm. this is a movie that like you know if you if you even if you don't catch everything or like you're like even if you're not paying if you pay enough attention. There's something that kind of connects with you. You're just like, it makes you want to revisit it, mm-hmm. you know? And like probably, and you know, maybe the weakest part of it. And like, it's not even like it's bad. It's just probably some of the actors. Cause like Candace Hillgoss, who was studied at the actor studio with Marilyn Monroe and shit like that. She was the only professional actor. Everyone mm-hmm. else was just kind of like yeah, local or whoever they could get. And I'm not saying people were given bad performances, but like, I mean the guy. Uh, what, what was the uh, what was that? The, the guy in the fucking that lived across the hallway from her. Oh, the the John Linden character. God, I, he. I I assumed he was actually an actor because he was really fucking good at annoying the shit out of me. Oh, it, that that guy. <laughs> he sucks. Dead. You know, <laughs> occasionally you see a male character that's like so misogynist. So like I. I don't even know what to put the words on. I feel like we've met and hung out with people like this. So he was played by Cindy Berger, and I think he was the one that actually cast Candace because, like, everyone else couldn't afford to go to New York. He's like, well, I'm going to be there anyway, so I can do a casting for you. Mm-hmm. So he's the one who got her. Yeah. But, like, yeah, his performance, is, it's really great because, like, it's just so it, it's slimy. Is yeah. the, It's like I you feel dirty. Yeah. Because, like, you know, it's behind the eyes it's out on his face like everything it's just like lust and like just cringe (laughs) (laughs) like it it's just it's very uncomfortable the way he like positions himself body language and like getting into her personal space it's like holy shit dude like i feel like you would get slapped by most people Mm -hmm. it's because she's like in a weird like am i alive dead weird state that like he you know be that big of a creep right and i do like the fact that he's like no please stay with me and he's like you're too weird i'm not getting crazy you know dealing with your crazy shit kind of thing mm-hmm. so like that was the crossing line it's like i don't know man it's like you you seem crazy even though like she was kind of putting out some vibes that like things weren't right and like i kind of wonder why that was the ah uh, it's probably because she didn't reciprocate when he tried to kiss her mm-hmm. like 40 times i think one too many cock block he's like i can't handle this you're nuts 
But I don't know. It, it that guy is a that guy nails the piece of shit character. Mm-hmm. Like completely. Uh, this film like I ended up finally screening this. This has been on my list to screen for a while, but like never really had opportunity. And like last April of 2022, I did a series called Horror by the Water, and I I did three movies because I took a vacation to Salem, Massachusetts, which you know town that's by the water, so horror by the water there. It all it all fits. It's all symmetrical or whatever. But I also showed Messiah Evil in the Fog with that, and I I feel like going from Carnival of Souls to Messiah Evil was a really good one two punch. Nice. And if you haven't seen Messiah, Messiah of Evil yet... I haven't. I highly recommend it. It's kind of in the same vibe, but even darker and more like violent and maybe more overt. But same kind of like dream nightmare logic kind of flows okay. through it. Cool. I want to say, seeing Carnival of Souls in the theater, we got um, Harry Guerrero's 35mm print. Nice. And I just sat in the back and it was just like... It was like seeing the movie for the first time. Oh, man. Killer. It was like one of the most beautiful cinematic experiences I had in a theater. And I just like kind of melted into it. And it's like, I really didn't want the movie to end. Man, I wonder... I It makes me... Because, because I love... Uh, because I love how much, like I love the way this film looks mm-hmm. so much. I'm I'm curious of the the condition of that print and what year it was from and all that stuff and like you know I'm not I'm not sure if it's original or where it came from, but like it you know because it's black and white, it wouldn't suffer from the Eastman fade. Mm-hmm. So you know the the contrast and like the black and whites look really really good. I think last reel there was some like damage where there was a couple of light leaks into like kind of the frame, but like that kind of added to it. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, that, I mean, that was one of my favorite movie going experiences, period. Cool. And just to kind of wrap things up on talking in that context and kind of give a plug to the cinematic void zine. Uh, I actually did a horror by the water issue. It was issue three. And I, you know, talk about the whole series, but I talk a little bit more about carnival souls and kind of how much this movie is meant to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were, as we were watching, you know, I, took some notes i've seen this movie a lot but there's a couple things that you know i thought worth pointing out and like one of them is the uh, mary henry line of thank you but i'm not coming back Mm -hmm. when she's like basically like at the organ building facility right and they're like oh well come say hi when you come back i'm never coming back and it's just kind of a weird foreboding like Mm -hmm. seed yeah good luck mary stop by and see us the next time you're in Thank you, but I'm never coming back. Also, I should mention, like, the reason why she plays organs in the movie is by the fact that they got that location to use the organ-making facility. Oh, okay. So it was, like, kind of a plot point by convenience, but I think it was a happy accident because her playing the organ, the church stuff, and then that whole soundtrack that's all organ, kind of just, it, it seems on purpose. I mean, the fact that, you know, the fact that she's dead and all that stuff and then her going and getting a job in the church, like it just, yeah, it's it's a happy accident that, that for sure just adds to it entirely. Yeah, it's just, oh, it's, I don't know, it's, I mean, I guess we can talk about this now. So you're just under impression she was dead the whole time. That's where you're going with it. Yeah, I thought it was, you know, fucking uh, Sixth Sense, you know? <laughs> I mean... It, it's a good I think there's multiple ways you can look at this movie yeah. that's kind of like it and like you know there's times I watch it where it's like she's clearly dead but like you know is she a ghost like because she's interacting with people but then there's other times she can is that because right. like the ethereal it, inter- uh, it does make me second guess some of those things but then kind of it's like at the end it 
you know, it shows you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a weird full circle thing. Like, she got out of the water, and then, like, when they dragged the car out, her body's back in there. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, is it just a death dream she's having? Is it just... I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. And, like, or did she, like, temporarily escape her fate and was trying to move on? And, like, all those ghouls, like, the leave one play by her car, mm-hmm. are they coming to get her back and, like, you know, take her to where she's supposed to be, which right. is dead? Right on. Like, yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. And there, there's little subtle things where there's shifts. And, like, we actually went back and rewound it the first time when she's in the dressing room and she's buying a dress at the department store. There's, like, a little ripple kind of, I don't know if it's optical transition, whatever you want. It looks like rainwater going down the it's, frame. It's like the Wayne and Garth, like, I mean, actually, if it is her, if it is kind of changing the, uh, you know, changing what, you know, is she dead? Is she not dead? Yeah, so, like... It's maybe it's like she's in between two worlds. Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of one foot in the living, one foot in the grave. Schrodinger's babe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but like when when that happens and she kind of leaves and then she's trying to interact with people and she can't because like she can't, there's no sound other than like her shoes and her talking. Yeah. Like it's a really cool like kind of effect thing mm-hmm. and it's just feeling you know she already feels lost and disconnected and she says a couple times in the movie there's another quote here or like actually it's not a quote from her it's a quote from the the minister the or the preacher or whatever you want to call that that at the church she's working for basically the line is you can't live in isolation from the human race mm-hmm. so there's like these weird like prophetic like borderline nihilistic like ideals running through this thing which are very european Mm -hmm. like i don't think there's too many american movies are like you can't be isolated well maybe i want to be isolated yeah but the you know back to like her like walking around and just like can't interact with anyone no one can see her no one there and then she goes to that park and all of a sudden she hears birds and that's like the reawakening to the real world Mm -hmm. and then like all the cutaways to like when she sees like the ghouls or mostly her Carvey's character when he just pops up here and there. And it's just like, you know, what are nightmares? What are actual visions? What are imagination? Or, you know, are they actually just entities that are chasing after her? Yeah. Lots of shit to unpack. Another line I really liked in this movie and it's from, you know, Mary is a church is a place of business, mm-hmm. which, you know, maybe now. That's a line you can get away with. Could you imagine uttering that line in the 60s? Oh, true. Where it's just like she's a church organist and she like doesn't give a shit other than it's a job. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's part of the whole like I'm not part of this world. I'm not part of your like construct of religion and all that because I've already seen the other side and I'm already on the other side. So that shit don't matter. I mean, yeah. I'm throwing theories out there because that was one thing about John Clifford. John Clifford refused to give clarity. Mm-hmm. He's just like, this is what I wrote. Do I have all the answers? He's like, I'm not even sure I have all the answers. But yeah, I think he just liked the idea that was open for interpretation, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool and kind of ballsy for like an independent film that like, you know, not made for much money and just kind of like trying to find a foothold to get in there. And I want to point this out because like the crew – is exceptional. The photography by Prather, holy shit. Like yeah. you already talked about, it, but like it's it's amazing. It's some of the best black and white cinematography I've seen in any film, period. Mm-hmm. It's I mean it's the you know, it's the costumes, it's the set pieces, it all it all like interacts with one another, you know, because it's black and white. Yeah. There's it's just really like 
clean. It's just really, you know, it's for uh, for something so cheaply made. It's it's, it's fucking. It looks expensive. Well, it does because, like, you know, there's there's little camera tricks. There was one thing we I pointed out where, like, she's at the gas station. Like, hey, where's the, you know, I'm staying at a boarding house type thing. Mm-hmm. And the gas attendant points and they do a whip pan and it lands right in the interior of the room she's staying at. Which is some clever, you have to think about that shit before you do it stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally. Obviously, probably landed some locations and some of the things were by accident. But, like, once those were incorporated, nothing in this movie is happening by accident. Mm-hmm. Everything's calculated. Everyone's right everything's thought through and it's just like it's just so well executed that like i don't know it's i'm kind of just blown away that like this movie existed and like you know a group of like it was a five-man crew including herc that like was shooting this movie and then they did i think a couple weeks to edit and then like they're just trying to get it out there and like basically what happened this movie is you know it fell in the public domain they had a distributor and they hit up the distributor, and they're like, yes, we owe you some money, because I think it was paying, playing on some double feature, hitting the drive-in circuit and that kind of stuff. And then they got a check, went to cash check, check bounced. And then that company went out of business. And when it went out of business, it threw whatever films they had into limbo, including Carnival of Souls. Shit. Which kind of brings the dark side of this, because, you know, as I will say this, Herc Harvey's a fucking great director. Mm-hmm. And, like, you can see it in, like, the industrial shorts and educational stuff he made. But you really can see it in this. And I think because of what happened with the release and the distribution and the fact that it fell in public domain and he lost control and, like, basically lost money on it, he never made another feature film. All right. Like, he just, you know, he's still working at Centron, just kept doing that. I think he worked there until maybe 1985 or 86 and oh, then retired. Like, okay. yeah, he just kept grinding. And I think there were a couple times he thought about and tried to, like, maybe do another film and just never pulled the trigger past maybe the script phase. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of really sad because it's like, you know, there's probably a psychological aspect. You put your heart and soul and make, like, this movie where you're, like, striving to be, like, Bergman, Cocteau, like, you know, like, all your favorite European, like, filmmakers. And you make something that's, like, least comparable. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not that far away. And it gets kind of originally shunned. Yeah. Like, it's just like, oh, it's just fodder for, like, you know, late night TV or, you know, just another disposable, cheapy horror movie. Yeah. I mean, it's... Folks just weren't ready. No, I I think it was really ahead of its time. You know, it's... And it's even got callbacks to, like, you know, early cinema, like German Expression. Look how all the ghouls look. That's coming out, like, Dr. Caligari and, like, things like that. You know, uh, Herc looks like Grandpa Monster. The, I'm trying to think when the Monsters came out. Maybe the Monsters was was it in the 60s, but probably. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know for sure either, but like, you know, this came out in 62. So, you know, I feel like this movie had a lot of influence on a lot of things. It actually has influence on Night of Living Dead, which we will talk about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's you know, heartbreaking that Herc didn't make another movie. But like, you know, like a lot of people that only made one movie, you know, sometimes... You just need that one movie to cement your legacy. Right. And it's like, you know, if he made another movie and it wasn't nearly as good as Carnival Souls, would it change Carnival Souls? Yeah. It's sort of like Charles Lawton and Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter is a fucking masterpiece, but mm-hmm. because it failed at the box office, Charles Lawton never made another movie as a director. Is that, is that his only film? It's the only one he directed. Right on. It's a, it's a banger as well. So, but at the same time, it, if he made someone else, made another film. Yeah. Would it feel the same? We went on to make Jaws 2. 
Yeah, if he went on to make Jaws 2. <laughs> actually, if Charles Lawton had made Jaws 2, I think it would have been good. Right on. Actually, no. <laughs> that movie would never have been good. Jaws 2 should never exist. But, I don't know. Final thoughts on Carnival of Souls. It's it's sick. It's real sick. Great shit. I'm glad you finally forced me to watch it. It's, it's been on the list for a while, and... uh it's it's not a dud. It'll probably end up in my Criterion collection for sure. Now, the other thing we have to talk about, the elephant in the room, is Nikolai's two-star rating <laughs> of Carnival of Souls on Letterboxd. Uh, uh, in Nikolai's defense, I think he was scrolling Instagram while he watched this and maybe kind of missed missed some of its magic. Um, Nikolai, give it a rewatch, man. I, I'm I'm just kind of fucking with them because like honestly, and we've kind of talked about this. If you're just watching on a very surface level, you know, way of viewing, mm-hmm. which I'm sure a lot of people do, it can just look like this is a dumb cheesy horror movie. Yeah, that's shot in black and white. I don't get it. You see a flaw and you just get drawn into the flaw, and then you're just not watching the magic of how it happens. Yeah, and I think you know, as much as I'm busting Nikolai's balls, I think that's you know, I think that's a you know a fair way to watch it too. But if you're going to, like, engage with art, which you should be when you're watching a movie, you get so much more out of it. And, you know, if you watched Carnival Souls and you, like, you know, felt like, eh, maybe give another watch, but just kind of put your phone down and just engage with 78 minutes. It's not asking a lot of you. Well, if if it's, you know, in Nicolas defense, uh, I'm about to give Night Living Dead two and a half stars. So let's fucking go. Oh, to be continued. So on that note, we're going to take a commercial break, but when we return, we may have a very controversial continuation of the Cinematic Void podcast. Hey, you want to drive, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen. Races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture making. Carnival of Souls. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man. The man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you. Really, I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. 
carnival of souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. Welcome back. We are talking about some 60s horror classics here on the Cinematic Boy podcast. We just talked about Carnival of Souls, and now we're talking about a movie that is just, well, I wouldn't say just. It, I think this movie is probably in the eyes of many more iconic, and we're going to kind of go at the end of this segment, kind of break down the compare and contrast of this film with Carnival of Souls for a lot of obvious reasons. I mean, it's the reason why we're doing this fucking podcast episode on it. But we are going to be talking about the 1968 film Night of the Living Dead, directed by George A. Romero. Stars Dwayne Jones, Judith O'Day, Carl Hardman, Marilyn Eastman, Judith Riley, Bill Heinzman, Bill Cardell, Russ Streiner, Vince Ravisky, and uh, tons of Pittsburgh and that sort of area locals. The film was written by Romero and John A. Russo. Romero was also the cinematographer and co-editor on the movie, even though he's not credited as either. And the movie was produced by Russ, by Striner and Hardman. And the music is, which is really good in this movie, and I really like, is actually a bunch of library cues from orchestral stuff to like some dirgy kind of synth stuff. So we'll be talking about all those things. And if for some odd reason you haven't seen this movie, well, let me give you a little plot synopsis. A ragtag group of survivors barricade themselves into an old farmhouse to remain safe from a horde of flesh-eating ghouls that are ravaging the northeast portion of the United States. And when you say ragtag, what exactly do you mean? I don't think that people outside of 1968 know what ragtag means. Well, I this was from the IMDb synopsis. That's right. I'm calling you out for not writing your own fucking synopsis. Well, you're right. Just copy and paste. Yeah. Because... <laughs> ragtag? Well, usually I look at the synopsis because it just makes it easier to kind of like... Because then if I describe, it's going to take like 10 minutes. To that's just get that's to the probably true. So I'm trying to condense it down. But I saw ragtag in there. It's like, why, who the fuck wrote ragtag? And it was just so dumb that I was like, I'm just leaving it. No, no knowing that I was going to op- open this fucking booby trap where you're going to be like, ragtag. Ragtag, dude. I'll never, I'll, I'll never allow the word ragtag again on this podcast if I, if I have a say at all. Well, you could have edited it out. You had the notes. <laughs> That's true. I'm, I still have my chance. <laughs> you had your chance. <laughs> We, we just to... cut it out. A uh, group. This <laughs> <laughs> so will make this next section like so fucking weird. A group of survivors. What do you mean by who uses it outside of the 19? 19... All right, we're running this bit into the ground. Anyway, no more ragtag. Uh, just before we dive into talking about the movie, I just want to give a little bit of context, uh, mostly for Romero. George Romero, who I think his father was Spanish, but like, you know, moved to Cuba, eventually ended up in the Bronx. And, you know, that's where Romero grew up. And he was an avid film watcher. And one of his favorite movies was The Tales of Hoffman by Pal and Pressburger, which is an incredible fucking movie. The Archers. Yes, The Archers. And... He would go rent it from the library and on 16 millimeter because that's how you would have to rent a movie back in the day. And there was another young young lad that loved movies that was renting it beside him, and they were kind of in competition of who could get that movie whenever. And that little young lad was Martin Scorsese. That that was the budgeting cinephiles who eventually became filmmakers. So it's kind of cool that like those two guys with vastly different careers, but both equally iconic and you know depending on the circle you look at you know going after that movie by the archers um, Romero eventually went to college at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and after he finished his 
higher education decided to stay there and start his career. He started making short films, worked on commercials, industrials, you know, very similar to Herc Harvey, who we were talking about. You know, as he was working, he also ended up doing a couple film segments for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was Mm. shot in Pittsburgh. Like, Mr. Rogers is really, you know, Fred Rogers gave Romero the beginning of his, like, filmmaking career. I think, um... Those puppets are just as creepy as any zombie in this fucking movie. Yeah, that's true. I always hated those little stupid puppets. (laughs) (laughs) What would make those puppets even worse if they went to Dunkin' Donuts? They're really... No, but they're... I mean, they're creepy, dude, with their little... Yeah, they, they those those puppets are kind of nightmare feel. Yeah. yeah, but that that was like entertainment back then. Like you know, that goes back to those Punch and Judy dolls that were always kind of uh, a little yeah. fucked up. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in general, puppets. I I think the Muppets kind of like soften what a puppet is to people. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, puppets, especially the wooden ones and marionettes, they're all fucked up and creepy. Ugh, puppets. I, I I never I never really thought of like how creepy puppets are until you brought it up, but you're you're goddamn right. Yeah. But anyway, off of Fred Rogers here. So as he Romero met some homies in like Synecdoche, New York. The fucking oh, <laughs> oh those pu- the, <laughs> we still going creepy, on puppets. <laughs> <laughs> still going on puppets. But yeah, back to Romero in Pittsburgh and all that. He eventually formed a group called Image 10 Productions. It was with John Russo and a bunch of the people that were on the cast and crew of Night Living Dead. And they kind of decided like, hey, why don't we make a movie? And two, what kind of movie can we make that will get, you know, a financial return on our investment? Obviously horror. Because like the drive-in circuit, you know, 42nd Street exploitation market. And... So it's like, if you don't have a lot of money, but you want to make some, you go horror in, exactly. the, in this era. Well, it's kind of still the golden rule. Like a lot, mm-hmm. you know, that's why there's a lot of really shit horror movies. Cause people kind of take that adage of like, Oh, well, you know, horror movies make a lot of money and you can make them cheap. So I'm going to make a horror movie which why you get like tons of movies where someone goes to big bear, rents a fucking cabin and makes a shit horror movie there. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like a one room thing, which the, in essence, this movie's kind of a, like a one-location room movie for a lot of it. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. there's some, you know, getting there, getting out, and that kind of things. But, like, you know, that that's the wrong lesson that a lot of filmmakers took. It's like, oh, it's just one location. It's like, yeah, but it has to be a good location. You have to do something with it. You can't just have it, like, basically take a bullshit vacation at Big Bear and make a fucking shit horror movie. The Chris Dorner story. <laughs> 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 All right, so we're going to get into talking about this movie. And at the end of the last segment, you said this was a two and a half star <laughs> rating on Letterbox. H- how do you feel about it after we just watched it now? Mm-hmm. I would say that I generally give uh, Day of the Dead three stars. You give Day of the Dead three? Yeah. Day of, De- Day of the Dead's my two and a half. Day of Dead's either two and a half or three to me, depending on my mood. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's times where I've watched... When, if you want to go back, I think it's episode three, which is only exclusively on Patreon now. We talked about um, Day of the Dead with Death Wish 3 for the Void three-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I've always had this love-hate relationship with Day of the Dead. Sometimes I'm watching it, I'm like, yeah, I'm cool with it. Other times I watch it, I absolutely don't like the movie. Yeah, It bugs the shit out of me, so... And it's weird that I don't have a... I've never had a consistent reaction to Day of the Dead. It's like, sometimes it's like, it's a two-star movie. Sometimes it's a three. I think I'll just... I think I would move this one up to three and just have it equal with, with Day. I think it's a lot better than Day, but that's just me. 
I think I think it says more, and I think cultural impact and like, you know, impact on the horror genre in general kind of have to elevate it a little bit higher than three. But if you're looking at purely as movie to movie, what you want out of a movie, I get why you would land on three. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still doesn't it still doesn't blow me away. But I would. I mean, this is probably the most fun I've ever had watching it. But mostly because I was just naming which uh, which new actors I would put in place for all the actors in this film if I recreated it today. I think I have some good, uh, some good suggestions. Why don't you, why don't you drop your like, um, your, so, your Night of the Living Dead remake? If Nick Vance was remaking it, who, who, who would you cast? All right, so for the Ben guy, for the Ben, I'm going. It's either Chitty from The Good Place. So I don't even know actors and actors, especially like in modern yeah. actors and actors. I don't know their names, and this is not even that modern. But I'm going either Chitty from Good Place, because I'm I have a couple of Good Place uh, actors that I'm gonna throw in here for no reason. <laughs> Uh, but maybe just uh, Daniel Kaluuya, the uh, Get Out guy. Yeah, you know uh, from Nope as well. Um, but he's just great. Oh, he's great. I mean, you know, if you know anything about you know Get Out, Jordan Peele, one of his big influences was Night of the Living Dead. Right on, there you go. I think I think he he would play a great Ben. Uh, then we've got, uh, and then I, I think I'm just going. Uh, um, f- fuck, man. Uh, I, I really Kevin Spacey for the Kevin Spacey character. Oh, you mean the, the, the <laughs> Mr. Cooper? Yes. We we I, w- I was suggesting David Cross as we were talking oh, about. Also it. good. I, I like David Cross in like a suit and tie with a gun in his hand. Yeah, and just being sniveling and yeah. like whiny and just you yeah. know just very punchable. With the glasses. Yeah, I I think he yeah I I think that's a good Mr. Cooper there. And then you got the uh, the. Uh, and then I want Zac Efron playing the Zac Efron character. Oh, the um, the young dude. Um, the, the... <laughs> like I don't know who. I don't know their names. I, oh I don't fuck! Know. I for, I'm blanking but on. But if his you name. see him, yeah. and you see and Zac Efron, and I'm talking Iron Claw, He Man haircut, like doing the Von, like what he's doing for the Von Eric movie. Yeah. Um, like that era, like now Zac Efron, like all beefy and shit. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, shirt tucked in, He Man haircut, <laughs> fucking ready to go. Um. I don't know. I think I think I got it all wrapped up. I mean, uh, would you say Kristen Bell for the Judith O'Day Barbara character? Kristen Bell for Barbara. Oh, I hate they're coming to get you, Barbara. Whatever. I hate that line, dude. That shit sucks. <laughs> I, lo- I love that you're like just shitting on probably one of the most iconic heart. Most There's a cool- word of oh, Barbara. Oh, fucking shut up, dude. Now, do you dislike that line because it's because of the cultural osmosis and how it's been like? It's kind part. Of- it's part of it, but I also just think that guy was annoying, and like. Who like they're grown adults? They don't play. You don't play. They don't play like that. She's not scared. The, oh, well, I'm so scared because you said my name was spooky. Well, I, <laughs> I I think she was more scared of being in the cemetery, which you know it's a load of crap. It's a load of crap. Well, I mean, you know, if you got a childhood trauma around like cemetery, don't believe it. Don't believe in it. All right, I'm gonna. All right, I was gonna say this for a little later. Before I mean, I'm you know, I mean, I got a little like you know, if I'm in a basement. And someone cuts the lights off, and I'm running up those steps. You know what I mean, okay. So how how's that <laughs> different from being in a cemetery and just like worry about something fucking grabbing you? Because nobody could turn the lights off. Is it because it's because we're there in the daytime? It, presumably, I'm thinking of that scene. Yeah, but what happens if you're there at night? I'm I'm more scared. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> I'm more scared than I would have been. Uh, no, uh, I don't know. I I I'm a realist, and I wouldn't be scared in a cemetery. You're fine. It's just another. It's a park. Yeah, but like it's ridiculous. Yeah, but like you know, it's just I don't buy it. I just don't buy the scene. You don't buy. I'm not buying it. Oh, stop saying that in a spooky manner at me. I mean, he's just fucking around. I know. But it comes back to bite him, literally. 
Or it, she, or she I mean she's not protect she's literally scared as shit because he's going blah blah. Well no, I think I think it's because the story it's the story he talks about when he scared her as a kid in the cemetery, and I think that just hangs on there. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the connotation. I mean, it is, it is, and I, but I still, I, I do despise it. I do despise it. It's not believable. <laughs> it's not believable, or, or, or more so. I just think, like, I, if I saw those people acting that way in real life, I would go, I fucking hate those people. They're fucking corny. Well, maybe that's why the Bill Heinzman legal attacked them. Yeah, I mean, they are the villains of the story. <laughs> I don't think they're the villains of the story. <laughs> you know, zombies, they're the heroes, humans. Well, I mean, that is a way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, that is a legit way to look at it. So I'm going to double down and talk about the cemetery part. So Night of the Living Dead was basically the movie that got me into cult and horror movies. That was my gateway drug, and I saw it way too young. If you want, there's an episode of In the Mouth of Cinematis on the Cinematic Boy YouTube channel where I go in-depth about it. But, you know... I'm just going to do the brief synopsis of that video because you should go check that out. But basically, I lived near a cemetery growing up. And after seeing Night of the Living Dead, I had a, you know, a rational fear that zombies would come out of their graveyard and walk to my parents' house and fucking break in and eat me. You're Barbara. I'm not Barbara. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not Barbara. I'm not Barbara, <laughs> goddammit. Oh, man, I did. You never had a rational fear as a kid? Oh, oh, definitely. Like I, uh, there's definitely like something under my bed that would grab me, and I'd have to jump from like really far away. See, I, I did the a little bit, a little bit of that, a little bit of like when you walk up or down some stairs. There's like always something chasing you all, every time. See, I never had that. I just, you know, I just thought like zombies could come out of the graveyard and get me. Like it, that was like something I thought about like nightly for like <laughs> you fucking. Watch this movie. <laughs> I well, I saw it on TV as a kid, really young, and I didn't even see the whole movie. I basically, basically, what I saw was from the opening. The um, I'm glad that my all my childhood traumas come from like parents instead of just like watching some movie, <laughs> like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember there. This is our free therapy here on the podcast yeah. as we're walking through all of our fucking fears. But, like, yeah, I saw it way too young. And, like, when this finally came out, like, the first remaster that Elite Entertainment put out in, like, you know, probably, like, mid-90s. And I got it on VHS, bought it at Kmart. And, like, that was the first time I kind of oh, sat yeah, down. Kmart. Yeah, fucking Kmart rules. Rest in peace. What do you think, Kmart or Ames? I think Kmart. I, I, Ames always kind of, like, felt like it smelled. Fair. Like, I, I don't... I remember going to Ames as a kid in Kmart because that was before there was Target and Walmart. Like it was a big, I re- <laughs> it was a big deal to go either. It's like um, I remember when they first opened the Kmart in Beardsville near where I lived, and they had like a bunch of Baltimore Oriole baseball players there because that was the big deal. It was Hell like yeah. this fucking big fucking Kmart opening. I don't know who it was, probably Brooks Robinson Scott or something. McGregor. Nah, I think it was retired dudes. I think it was Brooks Ro- Brooks Robinson. Might have been probably Cal Ripken Senior or something like that because they're yeah. from there. Yeah, that that seems to make the most sense. But yeah, that, that Kmart was a big deal, and that's where I bought Night Living Dead. This is getting silly, so. But anyway, you know, the, with all this context, let's just talk about this movie because, and as we're doing it, even though we, you know, watch Carnival Souls and we just talked about Car- Carnival Souls on its own merit, I kind of want to do it for Night Living Dead before we get into comparing and contrast. But like, you know, from the gate. I'd say, like, there's some interesting stuff. The one thing you pointed out was all the Dutch and, like, you know, slanted angles that were in this movie, like, for all the camera work. Now, uh, 
I'm not fully familiar from, I mean, I've heard that term used bandied about, but, uh, I guess I don't, I don't really know what that means or like where that originated from. What the hell is a Dutch angle? So Dutch angle is just an angle where it's like slightly askewed. It's not straight on. Like, you know, if you look at a doorway, it's like more like, like crooked and like kind of like fun housey, like you're walking through a fun house and like yeah. you're walking sideways. Like the, you know, the best example of Dutch angles is if you see the third man with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, there's a lot of that movie where like it, it flips to like a lot of Dutch angles and it flips back to normal and stuff like that. Oh, okay. It's kind of where it's been popularized. And when people like do a lot of Dutch angles, it's usually the point of reference, but this movie has a lot. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, I just, I'm trying to think because obviously everyone working on here had made films, shot commercials, that kind of stuff. And like, you know, sort of like in the Herc Harvey, um, Cent- Centron like crew, but like, you know, there's something about this, like, and this is not to be disrespectful, but this is also kind of the reason why I really liked this movie as a kid and got me into horror is because I could see the nuts and bolts because it's, it's definitely a low budget amateur production mm-hmm. and you can see some of that, some of the lighting isn't quite there, you know, when we were watching this transfer all the Criterion Blu-ray, you can see where sometimes, like, depending on what lens they were using, they got a little bit of the lens in the corner and things like, like, little, little things, like yeah. little imperfections, but I don't think they necessarily detract from the movie. And I think what really the strength of what makes that movie work is George Romero as an editor, and I will always stand by that he's one of the finest editors who probably doesn't get the credit he deserves. Yeah. He just has a very rhythmic editing. Like, there's things where, like, they cut to almost, like, almost a slightly different angle. It's not like it cuts to a close-up, but, like, just, like, one shot's, like, kind of, like, a medium shot. And then they cut to a medium shot, and it's, like, almost almost identical. But the way it cuts, it just feels so natural and so organic. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, there's a natural rhythm to it. And, like, you know, I look at things like the crazies where he was, like, montage editing like crazy. Pun intended, I guess. And, like, Martin and, like, Dawn of the Dead, he's, like, that spectacular editing, the way he just cuts everything. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just, like, taking all the stuff he shot and just the way they edited it and the little cross cuts. But even in the camera work, because, like, you'll see, like, it'll start as a Dutch angle and someone will run into the frame and then, like, it kind of, like, pan one way or the other. And just, like, it's just, it's really interesting. And, like, I don't want to say I know if they were, they probably storyboarded some of it, but like, it feels like a lot of it's like almost cinema verte or instinctual how they're moving the camera and stuff. It, it, it all feels very intentional. It's not, despite being low budget, it's not amateurish. No. It, and when I, <clears throat> and I don't mean amateur is derogatory. I think it's just like, you know, low budget, whatever equipment they had, just there was limitations and like. And one of my, one of my favorite things about it and it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's, I mean, it, it obviously works for the plot just fine, but. Uh, one of its strongest uh, points is just that it's it's one of those films where it takes place mostly in one location. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite for me. It doesn't quite uh, like I, I have a little I have a little letterbox list going of like films that take place in one location. Yeah, and it just doesn't quite like meet the the criteria for the list. Like it's just a little too outside for me. Yeah, but uh, but it's one of my favorite things about it. I I love I just I love a good film that like you can that that you can get a lot out of it in just, like, one set piece. Yeah, because, like, if you think about, it, like, you, you, the cemetery is, like, the first big location, and then she gets to the farmhouse. And mm-hmm. once you're at the farmhouse, it's all the surrounding area around the farmhouse. And, like, anything outside of, like, from the cemetery to there, the, anytime you hear or see anything, it's either someone's telling you a story or it's mm-hmm. on the news. Yeah, it adds to the, the, the isolation. Yeah, it's it, the movie's very, like, well done in how it's, like, 
isolated and claustrophobic and like mm-hmm. detention, especially when like everyone gets into the fucking upstairs and like, you yeah. know, there's the power struggle between Ben and Mr. Cooper and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say like, you know, the performances are pretty good all around. Oh yeah. And like, you know, Dwayne Jones like should have been a fucking star. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, probably because of the time this movie came out also because it's a horror movie that got kind of shit on upon its release. Mm hmm. He probably got his career probably didn't go where it should have went because he's fucking dynamic in this movie. Is he in uh, many other things before this or after? Uh, after his the probably the biggest movie he was in after is Ganja and Hess. Mm-hmm. Like you know he did a lot of theater and stuff like that, which is like I think they outside of the people that were from Pittsburgh they were just like pulling in theater people, and it's really interesting that he he's the lead in the movie because you know it's 1968. You know, there's race riots, racial tension in America. Mm-hmm. And Romero famously said, it's like, I cast him because he was the best actor for the role. Yeah. Not even, like, considering the fact that he's African-American. Yeah. And truly, he is the best actor for the role. He's, like, iconic in it. I think when I showed this, like, last year when I was doing 60 Shockers and we were screening, like, a pretty good 35-millimeter print of Night of the Living Dead, and I watched the audience get really invested in Dwayne Jones' performance as Ben. Mm-hmm. Like, people were, you know, all in for him. And, I, and it was, you know, when he dies, when he gets shot at the end, just watching the, you know, the air get sucked out of the room and people just being devastated in a way they weren't prepared for was mm-hmm. pretty incredible. Yeah. But yeah, I I think, like, you know, Dwayne Jones just gives a great performance. And I think everyone else is pretty good, too, you know? Oh, yeah. And Zac, Zac Efron was great. Zac Efron. <laughs> uh... You know, Mr. Cooper played, like, on oh, that's Carl Hardman. Like, he played the perfect, like, sniveling, like, just, I don't know, just asshole. I'm telling you, Kevin Spacey's perfect for the, for the role. David Cross, too, but Kevin Spacey, I think, could bring a certain kind of asshole to it that would really Yeah, really I, pop I, off. I think, especially where Kevin Spacey is in life right now, would add extra credence to it. Like, you know, you already hate Mr. Cooper, but Kevin Spacey is Mr. Cooper. Fucking the... He's, like, trying to fuck Zac Efron. Yeah, <laughs> that would just, that, that's a whole other dynamic and probably why your version will never get made. <laughs> oh, God. But, you know, it this movie just, for me, I think where it kind of like happens, like, because like when they're in the house, it's kind of a theater play. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, it's like a state, it's like a David Mamet play or something like that. Yeah. So you're really trying to sell me on this. I love it. <laughs> yeah, because I'm <laughs> mentioning Mammoth to you. But, I mean, I'm just using Mammoth as an example. But it's, yeah. it's a real, it's a good dramatic play. And, like, you know, there's, but even in the house, there's multiple locations. There's the downstairs, mm-hmm. there's the upstairs, there's outside, you know. Yeah. But, you know, as much as it's self-contained, there is a full world out there and then all the zombies outside. So, one thing I do want to talk about is, like, this movie came out in 1968. The Hayes Code, which had been, like, saddled with, a, you know, American film productions for the studios of self-censorship from like, I think it was enacted in 1930, but didn't really go in effect until 1934 had just disappeared because it was just arcane and out of date. And like, you know, blown away. It lasted until 68. Well, it was, it was, it was falling apart starting in the fifties. Cause you had people like Otto Preminger who was fighting to use the word panties in a fucking movie. And like, you know, it was just little, th- little different directors were chipping away at it at different times. Like Hitchcock, Famously from the movie Notorious, where Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant like kind of make out. I think there was a, le- a time limit on how long someone could kiss. So they would kiss, they would stop, they would say a line of dialogue, they would kiss again. So he could make this in- long, extended mm-hmm. kissing scene 
while following the rules, but really just breaking the rules. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, with the Hayes Code just disappearing, it kind of opened the door for filmmakers to get fucking wild. Because a lot of European movies were being imported and you can see, and like, obviously, like, you know, there's nudity, there's violence, they're much more open than where America was, and America's like, fuck this, we want to... We want to be able to compete on that level, like artistic intent. We want a single naked zombie. Well, there was. You got you got to see a single naked zombie, which is probably a good... I, I'm sure that was put in there as a selling point. Mm-hmm. Just like anything. Like, you know, it's classic exploitation rules. Put in some nudity, put in some violence. And then you have your both your selling points for exploitation films. And this movie has, has them both, you know. Because, like, the thing that makes Night of Living Dead, where it, like, culturally, you know, changed horror movies for was the fucking violence when fucking Zac Efron character guy, like him and his girlfriend <laughs> get fucking torched in the truck because they just, it's amazing that they make this big effort to go out to the gas tank mm-hmm. and they just fuck it up so bad. Yeah. Just the, this incredible thing of like, Oh, we made it. Oh, we have fucked it up. Although I do want to mention when Ben shoots the fucking lock off the gas tank, mm-hmm. This is this is the one time where I kind of questioned something that happened in movies. Like, wouldn't the gas tank just fucking blow up? I think so. I think so. But it was leaded gas, which we're not for, that familiar with. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, when did that change? I guess that's probably in the 70s when they went to unleaded. It's, it's probably still pretty, pretty, you know, highly flammable. Yeah, probably. I mean, also, what was that gun? Was it like a twenty two? Like, it, it, I don't, it wasn't a shotgun. It was just more of a, like... yeah. It was more like for fucking like pigeon hunting or some shit. Like <laughs> buckshots. Yeah, Who's throwing the buckshot? Well, the, and, and, and no buckshot in that. It's pretty concise because the size of the bullets are pretty. So I think it's probably like a twenty-two or something like that. Yeah. So it, you know it has some pop, but not a lot of pop. But I do feel like it would have blew up that fucking gas tank or gas dispenser or whatever you want to call it. They blew up in the truck and then the zombies started feasting on their uh, internal organs. Yeah, they had some like some cooked liver. Yeah, they, cooked intestines. Yeah, they were just yeah, they were just mealing, and you got to think at that point, shit like that hadn't been on screen, mm-hmm. even coming out of like you know the European like movies and stuff. Yeah, like that was just I mean that that kind of is what separates that from all the zombie movies that came before. Because you got to think with Night of the Living Dead, zombies were handled much much different. They were usually all voodoo based, like they're voodoo based, like you know yeah they would kill people, but they weren't eating people. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing when you think that, like, Romero and Russo, because he wrote the script with them, they basically tapped into something that became the fucking norm for zombies. Because, mm-hmm. like, zombie movies after that, they all fucking were slow. They all ate people or ate flesh or whatever. And if you got bit, you turned into a zombie. Right. Like, all that shit came from Night of the Living Dead. Right on. Hey, there was another uh, earlier in the film, kind of at the beginning when they first get to the house, Barbara goes upstairs, and there's a scene where... Uh, as she gets to the top of the steps, she comes across, uh, you know, a, a dead person or whatever. But it's like a, it's a, like their face is kind of like, it's kind of like a little bit of a skeleton or something. I guess yeah. you know, it just to me it seems like uh, this might be the, f- I don't know, I don't think you were seeing a lot of that sort of thing no. before this came out. You know, the, that is kind of like the moment in the movie where you realize it's not going to be playing around. Yeah, like there, it's you know, obviously when Heinzman attacks Russ Steiner's um character in the cemetery like you know he gets his head you know cracked on the like a tombstone or whatever but like you don't really get anything graphic and when you see like a fucking skull face mm-hmm. 
Like, the only thing I can think it could be a slight homage to is maybe when they, like, the scene in Psycho. Sorry if I'm spoiling Psycho, but you should have seen it by now. <laughs> but when they whip around Mother and she's a fucking mummified skeleton. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that kind of shock level. Yeah. Different intent, obviously. But, like, it, it kind of lets you know, like, shit's going to get raw. And there's little moments in there where, like, you know, Ben's fucking bludgeoning fucking zombies with a fucking, like, tire iron and shit. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal, too. He, like, impales somebody with the, yeah, with the just, tire iron. It's, fucking, it's nice. It's brutal. Yeah, he literally brains them. But, like, yeah, like, zombies were slow and, like, you know, obviously through voodoo and stuff like that. So this, because what's implied is, like, there was some kind of satellite that crashed and radiation's what's causing this. Mm. Although they never really yeah, confirm it. Right on. Kind of like, uh, I mean, kind of similar to, like, Roadside Picnic and Stalker and that sort of thing where it's, yeah. like, it's kind of... You know, it's ambiguous as far as what would actually happen, but here's the results. Yeah. Deal with it. I mean, you know, obviously Romero's been honest in saying, like, one of the big influences on this movie was I Am Legend, the Richard Matheson mm-hmm. story, which, you know, eventually became, you know, Last Man on Earth, Omega Man, and things like that. Yeah. But, you know, the, there's enough original flip on it that comes out, and obviously the zombies were inspired by Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls. Like, Romero liked that look and translated to that movie, mm-hmm. so... Which is a kind of a direct lineage, although the ghouls or whatever in Carnival Souls be figments of imagination, real, you know, creatures come from neither world to take her back to the realm of the dead or whatever. I mean, these these zombies don't fuck around. They are menacing. They're mean. Mm-hmm. They like the party. When they get in the house, they're just wrecking shit for the sake of it. Um, if I remember, and you've. I think you've mentioned this even in previous episodes when we talked about Night Living Dead before, but I believe one of the uh, one of the actors, I think the first zombie we see on screen, didn't he go on to to make like an unofficial sequel or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that, that was Bill Heinzman, who was you know friends with Romero and everyone. Like Heinzman actually was um, he worked a lot with Romero early on. He was the cinematographer on the Crazies. Mm-hmm. Like you know he was really tied into the Image Ten stuff. So in the eighties, Bill Heinzman got an offer to kind of do his own sequel to Night of Living Dead, where he basically plays the same lead ghoul from Night of Living Dead, reprises role. It's called The Flesh Eater. We actually talked about it on one of the... Um, I think it's on Halloween Episode 1, which I think is... Or on Halloween Part 1, which is Episode 18 in the Cinematic Boy Podcast. That one's still available publicly, but if you want to hear the rest of the on Halloween series, those are all only on Patreon now. So There you go. Getting them plugs in, but... If you want to hear us talk about Bill Heinzman, Flesh Eater at length, you know, we can talk about that. One of the things I should mention is that Vince Ravinsky, who is the sharpshooter at the end of Night of Living Dead, plays the same role in Flesh Eater and just fucking... Oh, nice. He Both times he snipes someone that was still living that isn't a zombie. Oh, shit. Although what happens in Night of Living Dead is a little more, like, iconic and devastating and really, you mm-hmm. know... So I the one thing I do want to talk about is like listening to the score because it's all library cues and it's needle drop and stuff like that. And you were pointing out like, you know, the orchestral stuff and the synth stuff. And like, I think it just takes real talent mm-hmm. to like listen to a music cue and like that's going to work here. Yeah, that's going to work there. And like the really dirty electronic stuff that happens in that movie is like that shit's like creepy. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I could be way off here, but. You know, like, it's like the more orchestral stuff, you know, makes me think this is like still like an older film. But then like the the synth stuff on the soundtrack kind of brings me to like 
what feels like a new era. Like, you know, like now when I think of zombie films, like the other Romero stuff, like you think of Goblin, you think of like very synth based, progged mm. out. Like that's like the soundtrack for the 70s zombie movie or like, you know, a lot yeah. of that stuff. Um, I don't know. So it's just kind of this feels like the transition into like the new era. I mean, it really was because you got to think most horror movies, you had a bunch of the Corman, you know, Poe stuff. You had like, you know, the monster movies of the 50s. You had mm-hmm. Universal Monsters. Like, there's a lot of horror movies, but like, Night of Living Dead changed everything because movies got meaner. They got more violent. This movie has a fucking mean streak in it. Yeah. Not even just with the zombies, with the people. And like, you know, as much as like Ben's kind of de facto hero in the movie, he's also kind of an asshole. Yeah, he's kind of a dick. I mean, you know. That's that's what's really incredible is just like how all these people are awful and maybe if they work together and that's kind of the greater point of the movies maybe if people just work together they would all be alive but because you know some people want to go to the basement some people want to go upstairs some people want to fucking go outside and and start fires around the house <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah I the, the the irony of Mr. Cooper saying the safest place is the basement and being right yeah is it's kind of like, it's just a great moment. And it's like, you know, Ben, but also I think Ben took satisfaction when Cooper like got, you know, was dying and his daughter was eating his arm and shit and turned him into a zombie. Mm-hmm. When he gets up cause he's a zombie now and Ben shoots him. There's a little satisfaction there. Oh, and the mom. Oh the, yeah. She's that's Jamila Jamil. That's who I would have play her. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, cause I'm going with the good place cast again. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that scene because that's another gnarly scene when the little girl kills her mom. Mm-hmm. Like it is just when it shows the mom with like the, it's not really a, a sh- it's like a spade or something. I don't it's know, it's like, like it's a little thing you look... use for gardening. Like yeah. you know, my mom had one kid, and I remember when I yeah. saw that movie. Like I, every time I see one of those tools, mm-hmm. all I think about is Night of Living Dead and that little girl with it. Yeah, it's just like there's kind of a, a like it pulls into like the mom. Like with it just like buried in her chest, yeah. and it kind of like stays on her for a moment, and it's like, yo, again, just like very mean, very violent. Yeah, like that death scene is probably like the most brutal in there because it's just like, you know, it's played by Marilyn Eastman, who also has a second role. She plays one of the zombies outside. She's the one that's like hugging a tree and grabs like a bug and eats it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a few of them like you know use the Evil Dead term, fake shemped, and like played multiple roles just to kind of mm-hmm. fill up you know, zombies. But like that death scene is just, it's just unnerving because she like, you know, she fall. I mean, basically comes in and sees her fucking eating like Mr. Cooper. And then the little girl's like coming at her and little girl named Karen. So is she the first like bad Karen in cinema history? I don't know. That's a bad joke. We'll just, <laughs> I tried, I bombed. It happens. But like, you know, it, it's, it's like, you know, it's a mom that's trying to reconcile with her fucking daughter that's about to kill her. And because she can't reconcile and like, you know, you probably could have disarmed her. But she's killed the daughter first. Yeah, I mean, I mean, or they could have left her when she got bit. But they're like, oh, doctors will help. I mean, if they had only seen the movie that they were making, they would have known better. But the other thing about this movie is like when you get to the posse. And you brought it up, and I want you to share the point is, like, where you were comparing, like, the posse is the, just, like, the zombies marching through. You know, they're doing, like, the little, uh, they're kind of like the, I don't know, what you call it, like, kind of like a search party. Yeah. Kind of spreading out. And, uh, yeah, it looks very much like when the zombies are just slowly coming across the hill. 
Yeah, and then they're just instead just fucking popping zombies. Yeah, true. Like, the, there's a line that was said when they were talking to the head of the hunting party, which, like, I feel like it's the best line in the movie. is like, yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up or whatever the way he says it. <laughs> it's almost like a really human reaction, like an honest reaction to it. But it's just like, they're like, but as they're popping zombies, all right, that's another one for the fire. Yeah. Now, before we get to our comparing contrast to night and carnival we should talk a little bit about the 1990 or 99 i forget what year it was it was in the 90s of night living dead remake which was basically made because the night living dead famously ended up in the public domain because there's no copyright on it mm-hmm. and basically tons of people would just bootleg prints bootleg you know vhs dvds all kinds of stuff like so basically romero and image 10 lost all their money that they invested in it. they just never got it back Mm-hmm. simply because there was no copyright at the end of the movie. With the Night of the Living Dead remake that Tom Savini directed, uh, Romero wrote the script. Like, the whole point was, like, for everyone involved to get, make some money. Yeah. That they wrote. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't think the Night of the Living Dead remake did too hot when it came out. But it's really interesting. I haven't watched it in a while, but, uh, you know, it's got Tony Todd playing the Ben role. Um, Bill Mosley plays, like, the coming to get you Barbara guy. You know, yeah, Johnny, that's the character's name. But like, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that they tried it. And I know Romero flips some stuff. There's like empathy towards the zombies because the hunting party is like just brutalizing zombies, mm-hmm. which is stuff he would probably kind of look in more towards with Land of the Dead when yeah. he got there. And maybe a little bit in Day of the Dead, just like, you know, a different approach. And plus, Barbara becomes the strong character and Ben remains strong, but an asshole and kind of flips where things go. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, you you were saying you hadn't seen it since, like, when did you see it? Like, maybe late 90s, 2000s? I saw it around then. I was, I was at a friend's house, like, at a party where we were all very high. Like, very stoned. And I remember enjoying it. Like, it was just a very, you know, a very um, kind of an overwhelming experience at the time. Just sensory yeah. overload? Yeah, just totally, man. Um, and I remember, th- I remember thinking it was awesome. And and maybe even at the time, just thinking like that blows away the original. I, I don't know if that's still my. And again, it's been a long ass time since I've seen that one. But I, you know, that's that's surely not true. But it's just a different, a, just just a different era of film where they could truly do a lot more crazy shit. And it's Tom Savini on the effects and shit like that. And and he directed it, right? I don't think he did the effect. I think maybe K and B ended up doing the effects or something like that. But I mean, if you're doing an effects and Tom Savini directed your film. You need your you effects. Better, you better fuck step it up. Yeah, your <laughs> effects need to be on fucking point. Yeah. So a lot of people like to just turn that, like when talking about like, what, you know, what is this film about? And, you know, they, it's very quickly turned into like a, a racial thing. And, and that's fair due to the era that it came out. Like it's during civil rights and like Vietnam. And there's a, there's a oh. lot of things going on in the world. And I'm curious, like, you know, I, I wonder what George Romero's intentions really were. Like what, what do the zombies truly represent at this point in time and in culture? And like, you know, who's, who was the bad guy? I mean, the thing is, it's like the zombies didn't have a choice in who they became, mm-hmm. but the humans had a choice in what they do. Yeah. And also, when you look at the end credits, which I think your comment was the end credits was the most horrifying and, like, you know, most unsettling yeah. thing in the movie, really. Oh, yeah. Because of the way it's staged, is like, all those, like, you know, the definitely race riots. Like, it's mm-hmm. definitely hearkening to that. Yes, very much so. 
I've heard different opinions on where, like, if this was intentional or this was just a byproduct of, like, cultural mm -hmm. osmosis that they were making and just kind of, like, zeroed in on, like, but something that was happening. I mean, again, like, he wasn't he wasn't cast because he was black. He was cast because he was great for the role. Exactly. Could, could that have been, could, would that scene have remained had it been a white guy that got shot at the end? I mean, would it have had the same impact? Certainly not. No. And I, I think that it was, I mean, that's kind of a testament to Romero. And like, you know, he became very culturally and politically conscious, mm -hmm. especially with all of his movies moving forward. Yeah. Now, before we begin our Night of Living Dead Carnival Souls compare and contrast, I should feel, I feel like I should mention Return of the Living Dead because people are like, you talked about Flesh Eater? You didn't talk about Return of the Living Dead? So we'll talk about it because Return is that, what, is that what they sound like? Yes, that's exactly what they sound like. I don't know <laughs> if that sound like, but that's how you sound like in my head. All you who would be complaining about that. But, you know, Return of the Living Dead, there, it was originally a book written by Johnny Russo, who was co-writer of Night of the Living Dead. And, you know, because everyone, you know, didn't make any money off it, you know, everyone was figuring out how to monetize off of it. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously Romero went on to do Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, you know, that kind of stuff. So Russo wrote a book, Return of the Living Dead, and then eventually became a movie directed by Dan O'Bannon. Now, the book is actually closer to what, you know, a sequel to Night of the Living Dead and more of a follow-up, whereas Dan O'Bannon is like, I'm going to turn this on, on its head, which, like, you know... I'm going to say he popularized a different strand of zombies, which are the running, mm -hmm. I want to eat your brain zombies. That all comes from Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. Although, you know, to be fair and give some props to Umberto Lenzi, even though he claims it's not a zombie movie, Nightmare City was probably the first, like, running zombie movie. Mm -hmm. But, you know, popularize and first are two different things. But, you know, Return of the Living Dead is connected to that whole universe, so... I mean, it's also... I mean, to me, it's one of the... It's one of the greatest zombie films of all time. Like, well, easily. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's right up there with Romero's best zombie work. Yeah, I mean, I love Return of the Living Dead. It's a five-star movie to me. Like, it's, you know, punk soundtrack. Mm -hmm. You know, great jokes. It's the fun... It's the fun 80s neon version of Dawn, you know? That that it's it's the fun '80s neon version of it that I kind of wish Day was, you know. Well, it's funny because Day is the stuffy, boring. Well, yeah, you, you got to think. In 1985, three zombie movies came out: Day of the Dead, Return of the Living Dead, and Reanimator. Mm -hmm. And uh, like Reanimator, more of the kind of that same again, just yeah. the uh, using the '80s kind of aesthetic to its strengths. Yeah, it's the. Uh, Again, I don't want to get too much into Day of the Dead, but like you know, out of the three, it's like my least favorite. Mm -hmm. And but I do think Day yeah, of the Dead. That's, pro that's probably the the prevailing opinion. Yeah. Well, no, there's there's people that will will stand on their high horse and say Day of Living or Day of the Dead is better than Dawn of the Dead, Night of Living Dead. Oh, that's, oh, come on, guy, come on, friend. I I will say this, effects wise, mm -hmm. Day of the Dead superior in both those movies. That's like Tom Savini's like tour de force is yeah. Day of the Dead. But I'm not questioning that, but like as a movie, mm -hmm. no, you can have your opinion and you can love your opinion and stand by your opinion. And I respect that, but you're fucking wrong. It is not better than Dawn or Night of the Living Dead or Return of the Living Dead or Reanimator. I guess that's my opinion. And that That's what's up. That's what's up. All right. So now a little compare and contrast. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, both Romero and Herc Harvey, you know, making shorts, industrials, commercials, that kind of stuff. And the, the the pivot here is that after they both released their movie that fell in the public domain and they basically made no money off it, you know, they went on different paths. Herc went back to working for Centron and, like, continued making industrials, made Shake Hands with Danger and things like that. 
And I know there was a few attempts, but he never made another feature film again. Whereas Romero, actually, the next thing he made as a feature film was There's Always Vanilla, which was like this art house movie. Not horror, because he wanted to like do something completely different. And didn't do well. And then he just kept making movies. So that's kind of, maybe that's the takeaway from this. Like, this is my opinion on these movies, and I'm going to kind of get into it, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. So, which movie's the better movie? Completely subjective. I think Carnival of Souls is the better made movie, top to bottom. I think the cinematography's better. I think the way it's shot, like the soundtrack, just the the feeling, the vibes, like, I think it's a superior film, as a film. But with that said, I think Night of the Living Dead is the more important movie. Mm-hmm. Where I think, you know, cultural impact, it changed the genre. As much as I love Carnival of Souls, you know, it inspired Night of the Living Dead, but it wasn't changing the genre that came after it. It's a little too smart for its own good, I think, is is kind of my opinion, is that Carnival of Souls is it's trying to say a lot more even, or, or it just, or it's painting, painting with like, you know, broader strokes. Yeah. I think because Carnival Souls had an outright art house Mm -hmm. aspirations instead of a exploitation aspiration is what hindered it. And it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. look upon in the horror genre. I, there's people that love this movie and I love it. And I think you're now a fan of it too. Oh yeah. Like I think that the reason, the reason that Carnival Souls wouldn't be, as popular or as important as Night of the Living Dead is also the same, are the same reasons why I probably like it and like it more Yeah, for it, that matter. It's just, it's just like, it's, you know, the fact that we were talking about Bergman, Cocteau, and like all the European art house stuff, and I feel like that movie, if it came from Europe and it was like subtitled in a different language, I think Carnival Souls would have had a different, you know, perspective or view from people much sooner than where it is now you'd see it you'd see it screened at the cinematech more often yeah i mean it's played a few times i mean i yeah by your by your hand well i was the last one to play but before that they had actually candace hillgoss came out for a screening and Sweet. you know all that that was when criterion did their restoration very nice and you know i think you know i know you got spine numbers and all that i think these are both worthy of being in the criterion collection mm-hmm. if we're going to go on those terms yeah, yeah, yeah but i think with night is Despite things, I think, you know, and I this comes down to, like, you know, who wanted it more? Mm-hmm. Romero wanted to be a fucking filmmaker. He yeah. had that drive where I think Herc might have had a great sense of technical skills and a good eye and all that stuff. It just, like, he didn't want it bad enough. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Romero went to serious debt making movies. Like, I, you know, there's always Vanilla was pretty much just in obscurity upon release. You had um, Season of the Witch, a.k.a. Hungry Wives, that like kind of teetered around. Didn't really get to be a well-known movie until after Dawn of the Dead, and they you know retitled it as Season of the Witch to capitalize on the horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not really horror elements. There's witchcraft and stuff in it, but like that's not the primary like selling point. It's a it's a drama okay, with occult elements. Then you had The Crazies, which was like, you know, kind of a harkening hark- back to, you know, Night of Living Dead. It's kind of I always look at the crazies as like he had to make the crazies get to Dawn of the Dead. It's like the perfect transitional, you know, from one to the other. And like, you know, that movie didn't have a big release when it came out. It just kind of got buried. And it wasn't until he got involved with Richard P. Rubenstein and they started making documentaries. They made that OJ documentary in the 70s. OJ, the juice is on the loose. That is. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> 
about his football days. Let's be clear here, because it's the <laughs> 70s. Richard kind of like, in some ways, reigned in George and like kind of got things financially stabled and you know fundraising, getting movies, putting movies together and getting them released by distributors and all that. Because like, you know, from Martin through Creepshow, they all worked together. And that was like probably his biggest run mm-hmm. as a filmmaker. And like, you know, I, I think the difference is like Romero wanted this more. He wanted to be independent. He wanted to make his own movies. He wanted to make his own vision. But like, you know, he figured out how to make it work where Herc Harvey, like maybe some ego, maybe just feeling wounded from like, you know, not really. I want to say the movie was a failure, but like when you put your literal soul in a movie and you watch it get basically stolen from you and you can't, you know, there's nothing you can take from it. Mm -hmm. It's just this piece of art out in the world that you don't get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. It kind of like, you know, made him stay in a place where he would, you know, he gets to still make films. Yeah. Maybe not, you know, narrative, commercial, feature-length films. But he didn't, you know, it killed his artistic aspiration where, like, you know, Night of Living Dead and all the fuckery they have with the copyright and all that stuff. Like, Romero just kept pushing forward, you mm. know. Image 10 crew, like, kind of fell apart and, like, went their separate ways and all that. Like, Romero just kept going. And, you know, it's it's about perseverance. Like, filmmaking is not easy. Making There's a reason why there's a ton of regional horror filmmakers. And most of them only make one movie and that's it and they're gone. Mm-hmm. Usually they get fucked over by distributors or, like, you know, you know that that's usually what happens. Yeah. But it's like certain filmmakers, like, are able to, like, crawl out of it. And I also think because Night of the Living Dead fell in the public domain, and so did Carnival of Souls, but I think the time that Night of Living Dead came out and when it fell in the public domain as like culture was changing, mm-hmm. it's what allowed the movie to grow is playing TV, even though it's graphically violent. It was still playing theaters and drive-ins and all that. And yeah, they weren't making any money, but like you could still see directed by George A. Romero. Yeah. In the fucking credits. And, you know, it introduced a lot of like future filmmakers saw it. You know, if there wasn't Night of the Living Dead, would there have been a Last House on the Left? Would there have been a Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Mm. You know, obviously, Dario Argento had heard of Romero and wanted, like, he specifically wanted Romero to do a sequel to Night of the Living Dead because they saw money. It's like, you should do this. Yeah. So, so, at the end of the day, it's like, personally, and I rank both these five-star movies. I know you have your different ratings or whatever, but for me... They're both five-star movies for different reasons. Night of Living Dead's five-star because it was a movie that introduced me to a whole world that, like, I wouldn't be sitting here talking in front of a microphone now if I hadn't seen it or pushed myself to see it. Mm-hmm. And Carnival Souls is a five-star movie because it's a movie that I just feel something deep in my own soul by watching it. And there's something very relatable to the whole thing. And just, like, again, this was my movie of the pandemic that I watched on a fucking never-ending loop. Yeah. Just trying to find understanding of the world outside and what I was going through internally. So I think, you know, movie from my childhood that like, you know, build up the foundation for me wanting to get in the film, call films, filmmaking, all that stuff. And a movie that like I can relate to in my like, you know, 40s. Mm -hmm. So that's where we stand. Do you have any closing thoughts on either of these? Uh... I was apprehensive to watch either of these, but I really enjoyed them both. And, uh, I mean, I've seen Night of the Living Dead before, you know, but, uh, I, I feel like I have a new understanding of the film and, uh, I'm glad we watched it and I'm glad that Zac Efron and all those folks are in it. 
Uh, it's Tom and Judy or is that couple the one that gets fried? Right I, I don't know why I was blanking on his name. It was just, I, I don't <laughs> know. It Sometimes, as you get older, your brain doesn't quite work. Uh, Carnival Souls is awesome, and I I will most likely be adding that to my personal Criterion collection soon. So thanks for turning me on to it. Yeah, no problem, man. That's what I hope to do occasionally. It can't be all movies that you hate that they're, I make you not, watch. You know, thank God not everything is Jack-O-Lantern or whatever. Hack-O-Lantern. <laughs> Hack-O-Lantern, Jack, Jacko. And... Yeah. Oh, God, I'll never forgive you for those. <laughs> I'll never forgive you, dude. It was really, that was mean. Well, you know, there's there's still plenty of podcasts to come. So, I, I you know, I was deliberately the... trying to do more on the artsy criterion side for you. Because... Well, I mean, you know, you, you don't have to cater to me here, but I'm I'm grateful that we got to watch these. Yeah. So, and you know, we're going to take one last commercial break here, but when we return, it'll be rewatch and listen here on the Cinematic Boy podcast. Total terror. <laughs> Haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. in fear, an experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare, night of the living dead, a night with the dead who cannot die, a night of total terror. Back. It's now time for on the Cinematic Void podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. All right, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? I've been start with reading here, here, now, here and now, right here, right now. Right here, right now. Uh, I recently been dipping back into that House of Psychotic Women book by Kayla Janice, um, who we had on the podcast. Uh, I don't remember the episode number, but... Episode 30... No, it's, I think it's 41. There you go, 41. But you could just find it if you search her name. Yeah. Due to the films that I've been watching uh, this past week. Um, so uh, let's jump into that. Did I talk about three women on the last you episode? About, you talked about three women the last time we did. I, I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't watched a ton of shit lately. But, uh, but that's that's part of what I've been watching. So I watched three women, as I said in the last episode, and then I went to the, um, I went to the boys' Bible study. Uh, we're doing a we're doing a series for the American Cinema Tech called Friend of the Fest, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a bunch of podcasters, not us, no. that did a bunch of programming, uh, and. I projected some of those. Um, 
So it's just cool stuff. There's actually a bunch of cool stuff because it was like completely schizophrenic, like very different than our typical programming because it was like way the fuck all over the place. Kind of cool, but also kind of weird. But uh, I went to the boys Bible study uh, episode, I guess you could say. And uh, they screened uh, the <laughs> Kevin Sorbo's uh, Let There Be Light. And it was fucking, dude, it was hilarious. It was such a good time. It was such a good time. And um, uh, before I get into that, um, on the Cinematech Instagram, there's a bunch of people just like raising a complete stink over the screening. And uh, it, was, it was just kind of insane. Like it's only, it's just like a click or two and you could figure out that this is all you know, wrapped in fucking irony that they're lampooning this film, but nope, you just got to react. I got to be the first person to say something and make sure that everybody knows how I feel. Like, dude, as far as politics go, I think like most of the people that we know that are involved in like the arts or whatever, right? Like, I think we're all like kind of in the same realm politically Mm -hmm. for the most part, you know what I mean? Like on a spectrum, but I don't know, man, but the, the kind of people that just feel like they have to be like the first one to be like, Ooh, it's crazy, you know, the, I don't know, man, just people just jump on that and it kind of drives me nuts, dude. I mean, it's always the thing with the internet is like people would rather be outraged than do research. Yeah. Or like, you know, n- no one's like, I don't know. It's like, it's bad to be earnest and it's bad to like say that you like things. You know what I mean? That's the state of the internet now. It's like, it's all about just like negativity and I don't know. It's a, this is a, a very, uh trite observation there's just you know i don't know i don't know what i'm getting at here but you You know the bigger point is that like most of the people that commented on that post aren't local never never been to american cinematech screening you know probably never don't even live in fucking la obviously probably so yeah so it's except for wiener dog from the todd salon film oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know i the thing is is just like people just want to be outraged for shit. And clearly if you've ever listened to the boys Bible study or just looked at their Instagram and saw what they're fucking doing, it takes two seconds. It's literally, there's no championing Kevin Sorbo as a fucking artistic filmmaker. However, (laughs) (laughs) I saw this film and I championed Kevin Sorbo as an artistic filmmaker. This fucking film is absolutely fucking insane. And it's so, it's so nuts, dude. It's so nuts. It's uh, it's The Room. It's Birdemic. It's, you know, it's one of those, you know, it's a bad, good film or a good, bad film. It, it, I'm assuming it's one of those things where, like, you know, there's people involved that understand how a movie's made, but they kind of, like... Very well made. Very well put together. I The thing about bad movies is, like, the reason why certain bad movies, like, live on is because they're usually a good crew behind it. Mm-hmm. And all the bad shit is because, like, no one could control that other than the filmmaker. You know, look at The Room. The reason why The Room is memorable because, like, everyone that Tommy Wiseau paid and hired on it were a professional. Mm-hmm. Like, at least the crew in that, that stance. Yeah. And because there's this professionalism with just fucking pure, like, just lunacy, insanity, dog shit going on, it mm-hmm. just, it's what makes the movie work. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's how this is. It is. It is. And it's this whole fucking thing. Like, the plot is like, you know, he was a, like, his whole family was like Christian, and then his son dies in like a crazy accident, and then he becomes this 
like famous atheist author that's like always like perpetually on a book tour, you know, and uh, and then you know these various set of circumstances like you know of course will bring him back around to the Lord, yeah. And uh, dude, there's this scene where he dies in the movie and like goes to you know like not heaven but like goes to some kind of like limbo, and like he's basically in like the fortress of solitude and like everything around him is like his dead son, like in like various, you know, like, dude, it's fucking, it's so crazy, dude. It's so, so sick. his dead son becomes Marlon Brando in the Superman <laughs> but, movies. But then his son also like appears to him in that place, you know, and like tells him like, Oh, you have to go back and like, you know, and then he, you know, becomes born again. And like, I, dude, it's fucking crazy. Like, man, I'm so, I'm, I'm so glad that I saw it like in a theater in a room full of people just like howling it was was so fun dude it was so fun so that was that was great shout out to boys bible study and ash and julian and scott um these guys are great so that was a lot of fun um but i uh so also this week i bought and watched uh persona bergman holy fuck man yeah i mean following up your three women watch like Mm -hmm. you might as well watch the genesis of all this shit yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess next up is like I need to watch. I need to rewatch uh, Mulholland Drive. You need to rewatch Mulholland Drive. You need to rewatch Robert Altman's Images since you. Oh yeah, yeah. Since you love Three Women, mm-hmm. I think you'll have a different perspective on it now. Cool, hell yeah. But uh, yeah, man, Persona is a fucking. I mean, like you know, obviously, like it's it's you know, it's Persona's not a not a secret. You know, no. like everybody knows about this film, but like, goddamn, man, I'm glad I finally got around to watching it. And um, yeah, man, it's it's one of those films that's just like you're you're a different person after you watch oh it fucks you up like the last you know i won't say last time but the last time like i probably watched it on blu-ray when i got but the last time i remember watching the theater was when the cinematech did the big bergman fucking Mm -hmm. retrospective i think it was for his centennial or something like that and the only one i wanted to go see was persona Mm -hmm. and that was like because i knew like what if this was if this is going to be the one i'm gonna sit down and watch yeah i'm not gonna want to watch it any more Bergman after that because it's just it's such a devastating mind fucker skull like soul scorcher of mm-hmm. a movie. It's just it's it's so amazing and devastating and it just it will fuck you up. Yeah, dude. And that's what I want out of certain kind of movies. I want to be fucked up and just feel like you know I felt like shit after watching it. <laughs> like it just you question yourself like morally, spiritually, like you just you question just life in general oh, after yeah. it. Which, <laughs> the segue here is, for the next episode, we're, we're actually, you know, is Persona a horror movie? I think there's a lot of horror elements in it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of psychological horror elements in it, for sure. And I, we're going to do an episode, we're going to talk about Persona, because I feel like it's one of the most important movies that, like, you know, for lots of genres, be it art house or horror, that it has its fucking threads in. Yeah. So we'll be talking about persona in length in our next episode for our spooky season oh yeah i'm looking forward to that so i will not elaborate on that any further uh but yeah big fan like straight up i will say i mean it's just instantly in like one of my top films of all time like i cannot wait to watch it again and i'm gonna watch it probably one or two times before we watch it for the episode (laughs) you know i mean god damn man what a motherfucker um all right, for listen, I've been listening to a bunch of uh, I'll kind of maybe getting excited about. I th- so I think my uh, 
I think the Double Life record is going to drop on, I think we're going to drop our first single on the 6th. So it's, I don't know when that episode came out, Jim, if it already came out. Where Sorry, I talked about. and by the time this so episode comes. Like, that was like six months ago that we fucking did that. You made me talk about it, and I'm pissed because it was way too early. It's like a month ago. Yeah. And when this episode comes out, it will already be out. <laughs> yeah, that this is annoying. Yes, this is annoying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But uh, I think uh, I think the single is going to drop on the 6th of September. And then, um, and then I think the full EP is going to drop on the fifteenth. So maybe this will be out before the fifteenth. I don't know. Since Jim wants me to do half-hour ads for something that's not coming out for six months, there you go. Look, there you man. go. Look, I appreciate it and all. Look, at, with at, bad at, timing. <laughs> at any at any point, someone can listen to that episode and be like, "Oh yeah, I should go check this out." And they be like, "Oh, it's already September. I can go get the album now." Okay, fair enough. Right on. Look, I'm just trying to find ways to be mad about things. It's fine. We, why are you mad about putting out a fucking record? <laughs> I'm, yeah, fu- I'm very angry about putting out a record. But my point is, uh, so I've been because that record is so kind of um, '90s heavy. I'll mm-hmm. say. Um, so I've just been listening to a bunch of like '90s rock just kind of in anticipation of this starting to come out. But, uh, so this week I listened to a bunch of like Sebado bake sale, their only good record, uh, spoon series of sneaks. That's like maybe a little more like early two thousands, but that shit rocks. Uh, Texas is the reason, um, on revelation records. Fucking love that shit, man. Um, I guess it's like the LP is kind of a collection of the singles and I don't know. It's all, you can find that shit on fucking Spotify or whatever. That shit's rules. Uh, Sunday Real Estate Diary. I saw them at Riot Fest last year. That was amazing. I think they just played Baltimore, so a bunch of our friends went. Like Mike Thompson went. I, I originally Leslie and I were talking about like I flying out to go. Tickets were a little pricey. Little, little pricey. Little right pricey. It, the, it with the incorporating the the flight out and all that. It was just like it was fucking a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna see Quicksand, which is another '90s band. Hell yeah, yeah, it's gonna be good. I don't think I've ever actually seen Quicksand, but I've seen Rival Schools a couple times. Uh, also, been listening to like No Knife, Nirvana, Beeswax, South of Boredom, Beeswax from uh, Norway. Um, just all the all the great records from the '90s. Bunch of Catherine Wheels, Star Market, Swerve Driver, fucking Shiner. I've, I've been I've been hanging out, dude. Hanging out, listening to the guitar music. It's it's yeah, funny that guitar rock. Yeah, when we started this podcast, I did not listen to guitars. I I think the very first episode, I don't listen to music with guitars. <laughs> I don't listen to music. Seventy plus episodes later, look what. Have full. you ever met someone that doesn't listen to music? Yes, it's it's, a, that's a weird. I don't know what that is. I don't know what happened to you. Like it's actually weird to me than not watching movies or not being in the movies or something. When right, like, like people are just like, oh, I don't know, I don't watch TV. It's like, no, do you don't like movies? I'm like, oh, I don't watch stuff. Like, that's pretty weird, but not listening to music. That's some real alien shit. You are an NPC. Yeah, you have to be because like, I, you know, I as much as I love mo- movies, music is probably more important to my daily intake of like what I do. Like, I'll listen to music like randomly at times. I'll listen to it before bed. I'll listen to it because I want to fucking listen to music, you know? The man likes music. I like fucking music there. <laughs> but yeah, man. I don't know. It's weird. I like all the music. I forget where I was going with this. It oh, doesn't yeah. matter. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm done. You guess you're done. Yeah, we we're just talking about people that don't like music. We're like, yeah, music's not really for me. That's weird, dude. That, yeah, it is. Like, yeah, it's, it's really weird. Alien, it's like even, I don't know. You know. Alien or a fucking angelic creature from a Kevin Sorbo fucking religious movie. True. Because they don't like secular music. True. 
I listened to some MXPX this week, so there you go. There you go. Starflyer 59. <laughs> and for those you don't know, Christian Punk. There's some good Christian bands. Zayo. Yeah. Although, I think there was always debate if Zayo actually were. They were like... We're just trying to get some money. Get trying the, to get those big Christian bucks. Yeah, it's like, how else do we get away with being this heavy and fucking mean sounding? Jesus. Could be. I don't know. That was always the rumor. I think they believe. I think they love it. Bathed <sighs> in the blood of the lamb. Man, That's lo- probably a Zayo song. Probably is. Like, you know, it, it's, it's weird that some, you know, sec- segments of the Christianity are all about the blood. You're like, we don't like, you know, violence on TV, but God damn it. Biblical story where someone's getting their fucking throat slit for Jesus. Dying for your sins in a bloody bloodbath. Ask Mel Gibson. Actually, the one thing... Uh, just before I get to my rewatch, when Boys Bible Study, they had a little trouble picking their movie because, like, all these Christian movie distribu- distributors are, like, just fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll do a premiere, and then they'll go direct the video, and then yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I thought it'd been funny if they did Last Temptation of Christ because that yeah. is the ultimate Christian movie. That, Passion of the Christ. Or they could have just done that. Uh, what's that? What's that recent groomer movie? <laughs> oh, the, the, the fucking like. Oh, was it? Uh, I don't know what. The, I can't remember. I care what the fuck it's called. Yeah, the the one that's about like you know, was it white slave trades or like um sex or um child trafficking or whatever yeah, it is something. You know, it's funny. Like, I guess they weren't expecting to make a hit out of it. Now they're fighting over who actually owns the rights to it because they keep trying to make a sequel and they can't oh, because the rights are so divided up. So like if you have a plan on like exploiting something, know how to make your money and not fuck each other up. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I've not seen the movie. I can't remember what it's fucking called, but yeah, we, we in fact, we know so little about it. We're going to have to cut this whole thing because we don't know the name. We don't know <laughs> anything about it. Or just leave it because like, <laughs> Yeah, you know what it's called. We don't. Yeah, if you know what it is, just well, actually just don't ye- just yell at us. Yell, yeah. just yell out loud right yeah, now. Yeah, don't tweet whatever. it at us because that will probably bring on. Oh god, <laughs> that will bring on a segment of population we don't want to interact just with. Tweet only. showtimes at me. <laughs> showtimes. I'm sure it's playing at the. It was summer. playing Glenda. I mean, I looked it up. Like <laughs> <laughs> you looked it up. Like, yeah, like for someone who we've already mentioned on today's podcast and I were talking about going to see it and someone else who I already mentioned on today's podcast did see it and said it was a piece of crap. I mean, it's, it, I, I don't have high. Sometimes you got to just go see something crazy. You know, I, you know? I, I understand both sides, but I know there's certain people like, why are you making something a profit? But it's just like at the same time, it's like, you know, it's an interior experience. I'm sure my, Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, I know a lot of you fucking, like, still have Disney Plus and all that, and they're currently fucking over all the writers and actors. I know you got a cell phone. Yeah. You know, exploitation and supporting things you don't like come in many forms. You can choose what you do, but you can't You can't pretend, like, no matter, just living life now, you're supporting something that's fucking terrible. Right. The only way to not do that is if you go live in a shed and build bombs and send them to universities. And this is a reminder that this podcast is on Apple Podcasts as well. <laughs> and Spotify. Both not very good companies, which hopefully they don't pull the podcast for me saying aloud, but they know this. They know they suck. They know they, they have to know they suck, but anyway, for my rewatch and listen, read, I actually have a title because I made myself fucking read something. So, I guess last year 
after years as a kid and having that fucking all uh, mysteries of the unknown commercials stuck in my head and playing during the cinematic movie i bought some of the books oh nice i love those books man they're fucking great and I, i've kind of thumbed through them and looked at the pictures and but i actually sat down and started reading one of them the the one i'm reading is mind over matter which is kind of like more the psychic and mm-hmm. like you know that kind of stuff i'm not deep into it because i just started but like you know i I have these books. It's like I wanted as a kid. I wanted them as adult. I bought them because I really wanted them as a kid. I need to actually fucking read them. Otherwise, like, yeah. why do I own them? It's going to become another useless thing that I feel like I have to get rid of, like Blu-rays or whatever. Right. So I'm going to start reading them, and I will give some more in-depth notes as I'm reading them next time. The, those types of books are really cool, though, because it's the kind of thing that you could just pick up at any moment and just like flip to the next section and, and jump into it and read about the next weird-ass thing you've never heard of. Exactly. So I'm actually stoked to really dive in. For Watch, the I finally saw the Sergio Martino, Edwidge Fennec, like miniseries that they made in the 90s for Italian TV called Private Crime. Severin put this out on Blu-ray. And, you know, it's kind of billed as the Italian Twin Peaks meets Giallo kind of thing. So sick. And it's fucking good. Yeah. Like, you know. How many episodes? It's four episodes. They're 90 minute episodes. So it's and, like four mini movies. And is it like it, it's tied up at the end? Like it's. it's it gets tied. It, it ties everything up together at the end. And like mm-hmm. there's definitely there's some music cues that are very Twin Peaksy and cool. like thing. And there's some moments in there that are. But like, you know, it's a it's really good. Like surprisingly good. Like. Maybe a few twists don't quite land, but like overall, it's like it's kind of great. At which Fennec, who was like probably in her fifties when she was starring, like just still looks incredible. Like I don't, she just doesn't age. Martino directs the shit out. They they shot that on sixteen millimeter too. Cool TV and like I don't know. I was this is gonna be, this is one of my favorite things that I got to watch. I I know there's bootlegs and like rips of this that were floating around for years, but I just never saw it. So shout out to Severn Films for putting out an incredible set with all four episodes. Another TV show I was watching, this is kind of rewatched because I haven't watched it in forever. Um, on Tubi was The Critic with John Lovitz as Jay Sherman, the film critic. I hadn't watched that probably because it used to play Comedy Central all the time. And like a lot of things I watched growing up, I thought there would be like five, ten episodes or five, ten seasons or something like that. There's only like two seasons of The Critic before it got canceled. It stinks. Yeah. So I kind of rewatched is is weird like how many of those episodes just because I saw them so much on Comedy Central mm-hmm. or, or Fox or when they originally played it's like oh I know these all by heart like I, I when the episode started it's like I don't remember this one and then the second it kind of kicks in it's like oh yeah I do remember this one on Netflix I watched the documentary on Nolan Ryan called Facing Nolan mm. it might be one of my favorite documentaries I've seen in a long time. It's just fucking good. It gets to, like, you know, breaking all the baseball records and, like, just him as a person. And, of course, has a nice segment when he beats the shit out of Robin Ventura when he charged the mound. Mm-hmm. That's, like, perfect. Um, when I was in my when I was in my baseball card era, like, Nolan Ryan was, like, the guy. Oh, he was the guy. Like, you know, he was, like, he was a spokesman for Advil and other products. And, like, I don't know. He, he's an interesting guy. And it's just, like, it's, it's kind of sad how he ended because, like, I think he played for 27 27- Mm-hmm. seasons or years or whatever and like he threw a pitch and like some played tw- for 27 years yeah and he was and like he threw like really his seventh shutout he threw really late in his career mm. like insanely late like people were like oh shit is he gonna fucking do this like at this point in his career but then you know body kind of gave out towards it and i think he ripped a tendon in his elbow and his pitching arm and that was it mm. but he was still throwing fucking heat late in life and all that i mean I'm not a baseball guy, but like, you know, growing up, sort of like, you know, 
You knew about dinosaurs. You knew about Jose Canseco and, you know, people like that. You knew about Nolan Ryan. It was mm-hmm. just, like, a cultural thing. Oh, yeah. You you couldn't help but know because, like, I don't, I don't even think baseball players as, like, spokesmen are promoted like that anymore. Right. Don Mattingly. Yeah. Like that, you know, kind of talk about the critic and, like, think of the Simpsons when they had an episode of all those baseball players. Like Dude, I, the baseball players used to be rock stars. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's the same anymore. Yeah. I, th- I think post steroid era kind of changed things. Bring back steroids in baseball. I'm have always been a big proponent of steroids in baseball. Dude, I want we need the Bash Bros. Yeah. Dude. I want monsters playing this game. I mean it's a kind of a it's honestly everybody everybody knows baseball is kind of a boring game. It's fine. Yeah, but it's fine, got- but it's kind of boring. Throw those guys in it, throw some monsters in the mix. Changes the game. That's it. I mean, it did change the game. Uh, also watched another Severn release. Uh, it was Drowning by Numbers by Peter Greenway. Cool. Which okay. is a great fucking movie. You, I might loan you my disc. So you Please do. Yeah, I, I want to check that one out. I mean, you. I think you might be more in tune to this than Zed and Two Knots. And the last thing that I ended up watching, it was a virtual date night with my girlfriend, Leslie. We watched Murder Mansion, which she asked me, had I seen it? I'm like, yeah, I don't think I have. And then I totally have seen it. It's it's in one of those Vinegar Syndrome, well, Forgotten G Alley box sets. Mm-hmm. But I think it was in... I forget which volume it is, but it's been a while since I've seen it. And I, as I'm watching, it's like, it seems kind of familiar, but I don't remember anything from it. And like, really good. Kind of a more of a bit of a haunted house kind of vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Some nice twist to it. So really enjoyable. Cool. For listen, I threw on a old favorite, which was Youth Attack by Charles Bronson. Man, I know every fucking drum fill, every drum roll. Yeah. Every single, every like, Every single like musical note that is hit on that record, I know it by heart, and could I could I could recreate that whole entire record front to back, like you know like uh, uh what's the, what's the uh like Police Academy guy you know uh, Michael Winslow I could do a Michael Winslow and recreate it the entire <laughs> like do it like Judd Judd style you know like really I that record is just like seared into my fucking yeah. brain it's steered to my, but like, I just got like, kind of like, ah, kind of want to throw this on. It's like, fuck yeah. Always a great listen. Uh, and 10 minutes, 10 songs, 10 minutes, right? Is that is about 20, 20 songs, 20, probably 20 songs, about 10 minutes. Yeah. 20. Okay. Which even, is even better, which is the perfect length of a full length record. Mm-hmm. I stand by that. Uh, also listen to the new Waysides. I guess it's single, but it's like, I guess it's building up to be an album. It's the song was proud of you, but it had the two previous singles on mm-hmm. there as well. That song is my favorite one they've put out so proud, far. Proud of you is. Yeah. It's right like, on. I think I liked uh, parallax a little more, but proud of you, man. Once that, once the chorus kicks in, it's fucking crazy. It's a rager. Final Gasp, who um, kind of the next, the Sam Hain Incarnate, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's kind of nice that someone's like doing my, you know, Glenn Danzig's best man, you know, worship, Sam Hain. Better than Misfits or Danzig. I said it loud, so whatever. Fuck you. Everybody anyway, knows. Everybody knows. Him. Yeah, everyone knows Sam Hain was the best band he did. But um, Final Gasp is definitely in that Sam Hain vibe. They put out a new song off their forthcoming record, Morning Moon. It's called Blood and Sulfur. It I didn't didn't grab me as much as the previous two, but still pretty good. Cool. Um, listen to Death is Nothing to Us by Fiddlehead. Is that the LP? It's that's, the LP. That's the yeah. new one? Yeah. Cool. Um, I kind of like it. I'm just I still processing it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's good, but like it hasn't really grabbed me. 
Yeah. And that's just kind of where I'm at with it. That's kind of how I feel about Fiddlehead in general. Yeah, it's, it's good. Just hasn't grabbed me. But what has still grabbed me and I'm still fucking listening to is um, Enjoy Your Time in the Sun by Ultralight, the band from Philly that we talked about on previous episode. Um, you text me this morning. They're like, yo, they just did a vinyl drop and it's almost already gone. So like, I was like walking to my car and I had a bunch of shit in my hand. I put stuff down and fucking ordered that record. Hell yes. But yeah, it's... um. They call it alt, new alt rock or alternative rock, but like <laughs> whatever they want to call it. But I, this might be one of my favorite records of the year. Like, oh yeah, I, absolutely. I, I think it's gonna land on my top ten pretty easy. But mm-hmm. it's just it's it's a it's a nice like alternative rock record with definitely some punk and hardcore things yeah. flowing in it. But like mm-hmm. not as overt as a lot of stuff, new stuff that's coming out. It's definitely a throwback to like the '90s and well produced, great songs. Love this record, so really stoked to get this on vinyl. But that is going to wrap up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Tell us what you think of Carnival Souls and Night Living Dead. You know, sound off in the comments. And if you enjoy this episode, why don't you give us a five star on the, you know, wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, Apple Music, or Apple Podcast, or whatever the fuck it's called. If you could give us a review or give us a rating, much help because it helps get the podcast out there to other people who may enjoy us sometimes talking about films and Nick talking a lot of shit about Dunkin' Donuts. But until next time, see See you in the the void. void.